Welcome, everybody, to this month's meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. We are brought to you by the Phantom Podcast Network. I am Jeff Owens, here today with... This is Richard Chamberlain. And I am with ClassicHorrors.club, and Richard is also available at... I am uh, with Kansas City Cinephile at kccinephile.com, also monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. And uh, you can also hear me over at Dread Media and find me over at uh, Boom Howdy. Yes, both of us, Boom Howdy and Downright Creepy. And Downright Creepy is the home of the Phantom Podcast Network. So all of that out of the way, what are we going to talk about today, Richard? Well, we're going to stick with the 1957-58 time period. And we're going to go with two films that... And I think I may have even incorrectly said this on last month's podcast, that they were two movies that I didn't think were connected. And uh, apparently, I had no idea what I was talking about, because it had been a while since I'd seen them. They are, in fact, directly related to each other. The Amazing Colossal Man from 1957, and its sequel... War of the Colossal Beast, 1958. Yeah, I wondered you said that, and then when I watched them, it seemed pretty darn connected to me. So we'll talk about that when we get there. I think it may have been I saw I saw War of the Colossal Beast first. I saw them in reverse order, and I think the fact that, that the Beast has a slightly different look in the second film, that may have thrown me off and why they, that they weren't connected, but in fact they are. And there's another little plot point that's kind of glossed over. But again, we'll talk about all that. Well, hey, let's not make the mistake we did last time. Let's see if we have any old business. The only old business I have is that, has anyone seen the famous appearance of Farrah Fawcett on David Letterman? It was, I don't remember what year, but she was on. She was a space cadet. She was staring. She was pausing, not talking. She looked at the backdrop and asked if that was if they were really looking out the window, something like that. Anyway, that was how I felt during our last podcast. So I hope that I am a little more lively and, and don't repeat my uh, filling filler words and such uh, as much this time. I I think you did fine. I I think you did fine. We went long with last month's podcast because originally I think when we started off, we thought we would do an hour to hour and a half per episode. Last month's was two hours and we had a lot to cover I think we'll be probably a little shorter this month because we're covering, first off, a couple of years that we have already previously done. So one thing we like to do is when we you know, cover a movie or movies, we take a look at those particular years, what was happening in those years, what movies were coming out, what horror movies were coming out. Did KU lose or go to the Final Four? You know, I think we talked about that last time. Uh, it was it was certainly a premonition of things to come. We'll just leave it at that. Yes, we will. <laughs> but this because we've done that because we've already uh, covered fifty seven fifty eight. We're not going to repeat ourselves. We'll do things a little different this month, uh, and maybe this is something we'll throw in the mix just for fun as we talk about certain years in the future. Taking a look at nineteen fifty seven fifty eight. What were the popular television shows, uh, and what uh, what shows were starting uh, around that time period? And also taking a look at popular radio shows, because 1957-58 was an interesting time. Movies were hugely popular. Drive-in movies were were all the rage at that time. Television was certainly uh, becoming more and more popular and was taking away some of the movie audiences because movies were now being broadcast on television. But radio was still around. Now, some of the more popular radio shows and radio comedians 
had left radio or were in the process of leaving radio. For example, uh, Jack Benny, who had been on radio since the 1930s, he did both radio and television for a while, but in 1955, I believe, is when he ended his radio show and continued to do television on into the 60s. Whereas uh, Fibber McGee and Molly is another very popular comedy show, had started in 1935, and they were still on the air in 57, but it was, it was certainly the end of their run. I think by that point, they were doing either 15-minute episodes or maybe even they were down to five-minute episodes, which were all pre-recorded and admittedly were not very funny at all compared to you listen to I'm an old-time radio buff. I love Fibber McGee and Molly from the 1940s. There's a lot of war references and uh, the writing was just incredibly sharp and, and they had a, a great assortment of supporting characters. By the time you get to the, to the mid-50s, it is simply Jim and Marion Jordan doing the Fibber McGee and Molly characters with very few other people Usually it was them just doing a very odd comedic skit. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling here. Do we want to talk about what uh, what were the popular shows? Yeah, let's do. It. Right I'm in. looking at your list here, and I've uh, rattled off a couple of them, but then I have a comment. Well, um, so 1957 and 58, both years, number one show on television was Gunsmoke. Uh, Gunsmoke had started, I believe, in 55. Uh, it was at this point, I'm fairly certain, was still a half hour show. It had yet to go to an hour, but it, it had, uh, in these early black and white episodes, you had, of course, James Arness was always Matt Dillon, but in these early episodes, you had uh, Dennis Weaver playing uh, the deputy named Chester. A lot of people who watch Gunsmoke on television, those black and white episodes weren't seen for many, many years. Uh, people know the character of Festus, right? And uh, that he didn't actually come along until the 60s. So Gunsmoke was hugely popular. Uh, in 1957, the number two show was The Danny Thomas Show. It was number five the following year. Danny Thomas is probably best known for the show that uh, gave birth to The Andy Griffith Show. Uh, Andy Griffith uh, created the character of Andy Taylor in an episode of The Danny Thomas Show. Hmm, I didn't know uh, that. As a kind of a pseudo-pilot. Then, of course, because that's why if you watch The Andy Griffith Show, at the very end it says, in association with Danny Thomas, because Danny Thomas produced it. Hmm. Uh, 1957, number three show was Tales of Well Fargo. It was number seven in 58. It's a Western series that I've never seen, uh, so I can't really talk about that. Uh, Have Gun, Will Travel, hugely popular show. Uh, number four and number three, respectively, those years. It was also a very popular radio show. Um, it was one of the few shows which were on both radio and television at the same time. 1957, I've Got a Secret was number five, which I believe was a game show. Sounds um, like it. Uh, it was number nine the following year. We have uh, number six, The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, which was number 10 in 1958. So, uh, again, a Western series that I'm not 100% familiar with. I've heard of it. Uh, 1957, General Electric Theater was number seven. Doesn't appear to be in the top 10 in 1958. I don't know what year General Electric Theater finished its run. Basically an anthology series. Uh, they did different, uh, brought in different stars, did different mini movies every week. 1957, number eight, The Restless Gun. I'm going to assume this is a Western and I've never even heard of this one. So uh, we'll say it was a short-lived show. Number nine, December Bride. Again, I plead ignorance. I don't, I've never heard of this one. Number 10, You Bet Your Life. 
uh, Groucho Marx, classic uh, game show. Uh, other shows, 1958, rounding out that year's top ten, a new show called Maverick was number six. We had uh, The Real McCoys at number eight, which I'm familiar with. I never thought it was funny. Yeah, those round up the top ten for both 57 and 50. So heavily, heavily westerns. This was a time period where, where westerns were also hugely popular on, the, on radio, too, as a lot of other uh, comedy shows were ending and a lot of other... Um, uh, a lot of the various uh, horror shows and, and such were, were ending on radio. Get a lot of uh, crime dramas and westerns were still pretty much the uh, <clears throat> what you would find on radio. Um, suspense was still running on the radio, hugely popular uh, suspense thriller program. And in fact, suspense was one of the last two shows on radio. Uh, they, it lasted all the way till 1962. That was the end of the golden age of radio. Um, it and a, uh, a really cool crime drama series called Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, which I love. Uh, it ran all the way to 62 as well. And I think we already mentioned, like, Have Them Will Travel was popular. We talked about Fibber McGee and Molly ending its run. A lot of the late 50s, a lot of your, your big shows from the radio's golden age are gone by this point. Uh, Dragnet was actually nearing the end of its run on radio. On television, should mention that there was uh, uh, several new shows starting in 1957. Jack Benny's show was on the air, was, was still popular. Alfred Hitchcock Presents was still on the air. Uh, it was not ranked in the top ten. I Love Lucy was still on the air. New shows, though, starting. Perry Mason began its run in 1957. Uh, Wagon Train uh, would began its run in 57. I should have mentioned Wagon Train was number two in 1958. So in its second year, it uh, became hugely successful. And that was a unique show that, uh, totally getting off the classic chorus track, but that was a show that started off as a black and white one-hour show and then uh, at one point went to a 90-minute color format. So basically like a mini-movie every single week. Uh, And also had some pretty big cast changes in there. Ward Bond was... Uh, one of the original uh, cast members, and I believe, if I remember correctly, he passed away, and then uh, they got new actors to, to kind of come in and, and keep the show going. And I did not know this until the other day, but John Wayne actually was a guest star in an episode of Wagon Train. He did it as a favor because of legendary uh, film director, uh, was it John Ford? Mm-hmm. Yes, John yeah. Ford did an episode of Wagon Train, and as a favor to John Ford, John Wayne did an uncredited, he was credited with a different name, but he plays, uh, uh, what's his, uh, I'm going to draw a blank now, but he plays the Civil War figure, uh, Tecumseh, oh, okay, so if there's any World War II buffs, I, I, or not World War II, Civil War buffs out there, I apologize. You wouldn't have recognized him uh, watching television back then, but with the uh, high definition and freeze frame and stuff. Now you can make his face out in the shadows. He was under a mustache. Uh, but when you hear his voice, most definitely it's John Wayne. And it's one of the few times that John Wayne did anything to do on, on television. He kind of looked down on television. He was like a, re- a lot of people did at the time. Well, right? At the time, Right, right. He was actually, again, Western trivia here uh, on the welcome to the Western podcast. Uh, John Wayne <laughs> Uh, was offered the part of Matt Dillon originally, and uh, he turned it down, but agreed to appear in the very first episode of Gunsmoke, 
he introduced the show. Uh, and he played a, it was very instrumental in recommending uh, James Arness for the role. Uh, he was familiar with James Arness's work. They had worked together, I believe, on a film, and they knew each other. And so he was uh, instrumental in him getting the part of, of Matt Dillon. John Wayne didn't want it, but he did. Uh, he introduces the very, very first episode. So um, Zorro started in 1957, and uh, Leave It to Beaver as well uh, love started in 1957. So uh, that was what was going on in television and, uh, and radio. Radio was dying out. Uh, no color programs, I don't believe, in, in the 1950s. Everyone was still doing black and white. There had been, now there were, I take this back, there were test color programs and specials that would occasionally pop up for the very few people who had color TVs at that point. Color really didn't become uh, commonplace until really mid to late 60s. You had a lot of shows would often be black and white for the first season or two and then would transition to color later on. So mid 60s is when we start seeing a lot of shows make that transformation from black and white to color. So so you mentioned Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock Presents, yes. which uh, started airing in 1955. Twilight Zone isn't until 59. So there's not really a lot of horror science fiction on TV at this time. Would you say still uh, movies is where to get that type of content? You had science fiction theater. That was the 1950s, which uh, was a bit more science fact. There were attempts to do some anthology shows. There was uh, late 50s. Roughly was, I'm trying to think, maybe 58, maybe 59, uh, The Veil, a, a very short-lived series that Boris Karloff did that I don't believe it was even ever broadcast on television. They, they did about 10 or 12, 13 episodes of that show. It basically sat in a vault. It never got aired. Something Weird Video released it on DVD, what, 15 years ago now? I had never heard of it. Certain episodes of The Veil were because Boris Karloff did appear, he was the host, uh, and did appear in I think at least half of the episodes, maybe. They did a couple movies, uh, pulling some of the uh, the episodes together and combining them into like uh, kind of odd mishmash movies that made it to uh, DVD or VHS releases, actually, excuse me, and actually very early DVD releases. Destination Nightmare is one that you will see as a, as a quote-unquote Boris Karloff movie when in fact it's really not. It's just taking some of these episodes of The Veil and editing them together for like a made-for-television movie. So really, the drive-ins at this time, like we talked about last episode, that's where these movies were. And I wanted to, to come back to a point we made then. Uh, we mentioned that a drive-in owner, I believe in, was it Texas, wanted something and that's how he wanted he wanted the uh, a sequel to I was a teenager. So how did an exhibitor basically? How did it get from there to an, a movie actually being produced? I mean, today would AMC theaters say they want something, and 20th Century Fox goes out and makes it? I mean, is that the power they had back then? I or think you, you had some theater chains that were incredibly powerful back then, and and. They would go to Hollywood and say, "Hey, this movie was successful. Make us a sequel, you know, or, or we want more of this." So teenage delinquent movies were hot, you know. So, hey, we've, this movie is successful. We want more. Uh, oftentimes, you know, movies would would uh, play, you know, in different parts of the country, right? They would they would they would take the the film and they would hit this market, 
and then it would go to this market. So it wasn't, it was a little different than it is today. You would have those films that would get wide release, but then other films would, would sometimes just basically go from theater to theater. I think that actually continued even on up to as late as the 1970s in the Grindhouse films, right? And some of those films that were making the Grindhouse theaters never really were mainstream films. Whoever the uh, distribution company was, I mean, they would they would acquire, you know, this this particular Grindhouse film. They would take it to this market, play it in these theaters, and then it would go to this market. That's why a lot of times it's the same print being taken from this theater to this theater to this theater. And so by the time you're getting into some of the lower rent Grindhouse theaters, the prints were so bad, uh, oftentimes cut up sometimes censored. If they were in this particular city, they were censored. Sometimes uh, projectionists were well-known at the time to cut out nudity scenes, and so they would have their own little private uh, reels of, of nudity. <laughs> um, so you, you, would, you would never know for sure, you know. I mean, the print you're seeing in uh, some sleazy little theater somewhere uh, might not even be the complete movie. And it was joked about in... Uh, the movie Grindhouse several years ago, the the first uh, Planet Terror, where all of a sudden it just jumps like 10 minutes in time, right? And it says, you know, sorry, missing a reel. That was actually partially true. A lot of times movies would just be missing a reel back then, and that's because they were taken from theater to theater to theater to theater. So, yeah, it was kind of different times. It's Now, of course, everything is, is one theater gets it, and everyone gets it right on, on the same day, and it's like the whole theater chains a lot more mom and pop theaters back then and so some of them had more power than others interesting all right well let's take a quick break let's play the trailer for the amazing colossal man and then uh, come back and talk about it sounds good she's a girl who loved a man a man who in a flash became a living threat to humanity a danger so awe-inspiring that they tried to hide his existence from the world. What happened? What made him grow? Glenn Manning is growing from 8 to 10 feet a day. The moment, he's 18 feet tall. Tomorrow, he'll be 26 feet. The next day, 35, maybe 40, and the next day... But you've got to stop it! I don't want to grow anymore! Day and night, scientists search, trying every experiment their brilliant minds can conceive, finding the expected, the unexpected, and the shocking. For the immeasurable power of this ever-growing mammoth portends a fate that terrifies the universe. Drive it in hard. We have to penetrate the bone in the first ejection. Ready? Look out! He's reaching down! We want to help you to get well. Henning's disappeared, Eric. We can't find him anywhere on the grounds. Police Chief Benson has asked me to tell you to stay in your homes. Stay in your homes. A man once loved by a woman, now feared by the whole world. A 60-foot giant in the streets of Las Vegas. 
and we are going to talk about 1957's The Amazing Colossal Man. And I have to tell you, I loved this movie. This was a lot of fun, and it's been a while since I'd seen these two movies, and, and uh, I forgot, actually, having just seen Attack of the 50-Foot Woman last year, I think it was, fall of, of maybe 2015, so last year, year and a half, comparing the special effects as they were in that film to this film. Again, we're, we're dealing with limited budgets and, and limited effects, but I thought the special effects in this film, that was the immediate thing, the first thing I thought when I saw... Uh, the Colossal Man for the first time, I thought, well, this is a lot better than what I just saw in the last year or so with Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. And it came out before Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. And there's, so, yeah, there's some, yeah, granted, there's a few scenes where maybe it looks a little sketchy, but well, not he's, bad. Well, my note was that he looks more pale and sort of white than he does transparent. 50-Foot Woman was all about transparency. And there is a little bit of that here. But, um, yeah, much, much better. It's a, well, and a lot limited. Yeah, I think there was the one, one scene, and I'm not even sure which movie it was in, where he was like, I don't know, there's, there's the one scene where he was kind of standing up in front of like a building or something, where it was like, there was a moment where he was like, yep, you can see through him. Whereas Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, you're seeing through her large chunks of, of, of scenery. So, uh, and thankfully, they did not go the route in this film of creating giant fake hands no way shape or form fit inside the building in which the you're supposed to be seeing it which you had some of that in this you know it's like you wonder how they got him out of of how they get him in the room and 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 i guess we're jumping ahead a little bit but there's there's certainly there was a few moments where you're like okay you just gotta go with it in these films sometimes there's just leaps of logic and you either are going to nitpick and go crazy with it, or you're just going to embrace it and say, well, you know what? We'll just, he just, you know, magically transported out into the, uh, the three ring circus tent out in the courtyard. So, yeah, I wrote about, uh, attack of the 50 foot woman in the, within the last year. And that, that was my, one of my comments. Is it really cheaper and more effective to build a giant fake hand than it is just to, you know, shoot a hand in the foreground of your shot and make it look big, you know, but I, I guess that's maybe where they, they were, decided to put their money. Maybe they were trying to go for this, we're going to create this giant hand to be more realistic and Ooh. stuff, when in fact it was pretty horrific. So uh, laughable, really, at this point. Yeah. And speaking of special effects, from the very beginning in this, uh, the shot of uh, the main character becoming irradiated i guess so that he eventually becomes the amazing colossal man that's a terrifying scene that's a really good scene um it so let, let's backtrack it yeah we sure talk kind yeah. of i guess what the movie's about so we can get to that that scene which is really the first big moment in the movie you've got our main characters lieutenant colonel glenn manning played by glenn langan i believe is how it's pronounced and he is uh part of a uh, a military uh, plutonium bl- bomb blast test, I guess, at uh, Camp Desert Rock, and which we'll talk about some of the erroneous facts a little bit about that. But um, basically, the the bomb is supposed to go off. It doesn't go off. Uh, randomly, a plane crashes at the test site, and Colonel Glenn Manning is is going to be the hero. They're they're in a trench. And then basically, you know, okay, the, the plutonium bomb hasn't gone off. There's a problem, but it will go off. He leaps out of the, 
dugout and goes running and uh, tries to get to the plane. And then, of course, on cue, the bomb explodes. And then, uh, and then we got those tremendous special effects. He puts his arm up, and that'll become a, a plot point later that sort of protects his face. But he's just blasted, and it it just it looks sort of like snow, but it's you know, and his clothes are, are yeah, ripped off. His his flesh immediately is is obviously burned. Uh, I had totally forgotten that scene, and so when I saw that, I was like, "Wow, that's that's actually really kind of graphic for." For a time period that we were not too far removed from uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? So, I mean, we're honestly, I mean, you, you had real life victims appearing that way. So, this is still very much in, in the mindset of the, the people uh, at that time. And, and uh, really, the creation of the colossal man, so to speak, maybe not the results, but. That all of that very realistic could have happened, I think. And I want to talk for a minute about the way the movie opens because one of the reasons I liked it is I thought it was really just effectively done. So I mean, the movie literally begins with trucks racing down the road. The music's really, really good by Albert Glasser. There's sort of a military drums behind the horns. I, I really like the music. You know, there's a countdown to the explosion coming up. That's very effective. And then they hit the countdown and nothing happens. Uh, so they say, well, that's normal sometimes. Be careful. It might still go off. And then Glenn, you know, runs out. Before it explodes, everything goes silent. The music stops. There's no noise. And then there's the explosion. That whole thing from beginning to that point, I think, was just really well done. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, you get your blood pumping right from the get-go. It's like you're you were kind of in the thick of something. So it's uh, honestly a lot of these movies build to build to that moment. Here we're just immediately kind of right into a very exciting uh, kickoff to the film. And I believe that uh, creation of the Colossal Man, brutal, graphic for the time period. I think. Yes. And, uh, so we get the creation of you know really right from the get-go. We don't see him become colossal, though, for a while. We're not really sure, uh, title aside, what is going to happen to him. Well, he gets taken to a hospital. Uh, he has burns over 90% of his body. Uh, theoretically, shouldn't survive that. Uh, but he does survive. The military, of course, uh, they want to test him. They want to experiment on him because they, how is he alive? Um, you mentioned the shielding of the eyes. His eyes were, were not irradiated, so he, he knows he can see, but the rest of his body has been. Well, uh, the next morning they unbandaged him, and his skin, he looks normal. He's completely healed. He's lost his hair. But he's lost his hair. A he's lot of us, that happens to a lot of us. <laughs> so uh, we don't have to be wrapped in bandages or go through an explosion to lose our hair. But Exactly. And, and so, you know. Uh, and that, So that's sort of his first stage, and the doctors say that he's developed new skin, and uh, it, this is one thing I like in the movie. They explain their hypothesis or what has happened, but then they say, I don't know why. So later on, tell me why. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. So they, they're very wise at explaining what has happened, sort of to an extent why, but they, they don't seem to really get that it's because he's been blasted by a plutonium bomb. There's that, there's that lack of connection there, which is I think is, is interesting. I mean, they do know, they acknowledge very early on that his, his heart and circulatory system are failing to keep pace with this growth, which is an interesting plot point that is, is, is kind of key to this film and is 
very quickly forgotten by the time we get to the second film. Also becoming very despondent. Um, he's got a fiance. Uh, she, you know, finagles herself into the, to the base. She wants to know what's happening as he continues to grow. There's where the leap of logic is. At one point he's, he's in a room. It's like, well, okay, well, how are they going to get him out of that building? They put him in there, but he's growing. I mean, obviously you'd have to cut the side of the building out, right? I mean, that's the only way you're going to get him out of there. I actually think there was a line about that. Was there? Uh, I don't know if it was at this point, but somewhere in one of these movies, they talked about tearing down the wall or something to get him out. I, if I run across my note, I'll bring it up. But I pretty sure cover, they did. That'd be the only way you could get him out of there. And then they put him in the courtyard and put him under like a big circus tent. But of course, his his not only is he depressed at his at his condition because he feels like a freak and he can't he can't do anything. He can't pick up the phone. He can't read a book. Even the food that they give him is is not enough to sustain him. And uh, in the process of of all of this this chemical changes to his body, he's growing depressed. He, he's gradually beginning to lose his mind. I mean, he's 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 on the verge of. There's a lot of stress, obviously, going on, very despondent. But there's also some chemical things going on that's affecting his, his mind. He's, he's uh, as, they, as they say, basically, his body's not keeping up, his, his uh, circulatory system. So he's not getting enough blood to the brain. Therefore, that's, it's affecting his, his mental capacity. Uh, now, at this point, you know, up to this point, it's, it's just been the process of him growing and, 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 you know, they're trying to figure out they're really the, the quote unquote action of this film really doesn't happen until almost the final reel. Yeah. So. There's a point where I thought, okay, come on. I want to see some death and destruction. You know? Yeah. We didn't get, we got this big, exciting blast at the beginning, but there is a long lull between he finally reaches this point. Uh, he reaches 50 feet tall, his growth stops. And, uh, He's become insane, basically. He's and he goes on a on a on a rampage, and uh, because they're you know close to the to the desert, of course, Las Vegas is the prime target. But one thing I I found interesting in both these movies, there are several times right that that they essentially they lose track of as like exactly how could, how could you lose track of a fifty foot man? It yeah. doesn't make sense to me how how you would lose track. I mean, it's like. Okay, he hides behind a mountain. I would think that you'd eventually be able to see him. Um, how he made it to Las Vegas with nobody being able to track him is is you, that's a, that's one of those you just gotta you gotta go with it. You can't concentrate too much on that. Well, one. they didn't have the technology we have today. You know, they it was. No one notices a 50-foot man walking by unless they read about it on Facebook or Twitter. I guess I guess that's true. I guess they didn't have Facebook to alert them that there was this 50-foot man wandering in the desert. So once he gets to Vegas, that's when we got to see your, your destruction. We get to see... Yeah, I mean, it's not... A little. I mean, <laughs> he's not going to go... He doesn't terrorize the strip. Uh, the, the cowboy sign, unfortunately, doesn't doesn't fare too well. You know, the his fiance. um uh, is uh, Carol Forrest, and, and she is trying desperately to, to get him to, to calm down, to, to hear her voice, to kind of connect with that part of his memory. But the military is, is pretty much, I mean, they, they've decided, well, we're just going to have to kill him. 
Well, they are trying to find a cure at the same time. They and, are. And damn, she is convinced they're going to find a cure. I don't know how many times I've heard heard her tell Glenn, you know, they're going to find a cure. They're going to find a cure. Uh, but there there are scenes where they're experimenting on animals and testing they, they, things. It's true. They don't give up on him until he goes on the on the rampage. And at that point, they've got to stop him. You know, he's he's he, his mental faculty faculties are gone. And and that's that's where you get the conflict between the military and you now he is the amazing colossal man. And it is relatively short lived. I liked how he gave himself that name uh, when he's in the tent like you mentioned earlier, and he's down on himself and he's reading the newspaper. He thinks he's a circus freak and he goes, look at me, the amazing colossal man. Yeah. He, he names himself. He, yeah. he does. He, he, he understands his, uh, where he, you know, where he's at now. And, uh, you know, obviously then again, they're still working on trying to find a cure. At one point, the best they can come up with is, uh, a drug to, that would stop his growth. They, they haven't been able to find a way to to uh, reverse, it. reverse it. Now, that's a really cool scene. Uh, they have the big needle. Oh, I love that. That's a very I love that's that scene. the best scenes in the movie. They're, they, they're trying to inject him, and, uh, and he ends up uh, grabbing the needle and uh, throws it like a dart or a spear. Of course, the needle is the size of a, of a, of a man, and ends up basically spearing, I forget which character it was, but one of the military guys, brutally, you know, and it's, again, limited special effects, but it was a cool moment. It was a cool moment. He just hauls off, and, and that's that's kind of the moment, right? When he, when he has officially crossed the line, because now he's committed murder. His ability to communicate is now stopping. He is, he's kind of crossing that line and going to full-blown uh, rampage mode. And uh, that's, you know, right after that is when he begins heading off to Las Vegas, I guess, and, and uh, try his luck at the slots. <laughs> yeah. So we have the, <clears throat> not giving away the, the, the main, you know, the climactic moment of the film. Spoiler alert on a 1957 film. I guess we need to talk about it because it leads into the sequel. Oh, yeah. Uh, he gets shot uh, as they're over the uh, Boulder Dam, Right. Right. Well, before that, let's talk about the King Kong moment. He does lift Carol for ah, just a moment yes. and then sets her down. And even the effects in that weren't too bad. No, I know. I mean, I mean, really, uh, you know, they're, they're superimposed, right? I mean, his, his terrorizing is, is all superimposed. But I think, it, I think it's actually done fairly well for the time period. And again, compared to 50-foot woman, it's night and day. It's, it's vastly improved. So, so you have the big battle at the, at the, at the dam. Uh, he gets shot, and as is typical with a lot of these films, right? It's like you know we're rushing into the moment, 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 moment. moment and here comes the monster. We shoot, we shoot the monster. Monster goes off into the uh, into the uh, to the water below. <sighs> the end. It's just a very abrupt ending. As like you know, he could have survived. You know, I mean, he, you know, was I wonder he, if he did. Was he was he really gone? So you get the end. The, the the creature has been destroyed, and everyone's everyone's going to go off and, and uh, live happily ever after, at least until the sequel comes out the following year. So let's go back because there's some details I want to talk about. I will argue that this is more thought out a script than most. Uh, there is a moment near the end where the doctor, Doctor Langan, 
uh, flies a helicopter. He and Carol get in the helicopter to go look. He's a doctor. How does he know how to fly a helicopter is what everyone's thinking. Well, the movie actually addresses it. Granted, it's a simple answer. She, Carol asked him, how did you learn to fly a helicopter? He said, I just wanted to learn and I did. <laughs> so I'll explain. That's not a, a, a plot hole at all. He that's, a, that's a 1950s. It's like, well, I'm a man and I learned how. But they didn't have to address that. you no, know. I mean, they, they So I thought that was really cool. Uh, going back to the the grim part of the beginning, when at the very beginning when he's already in the hospital and they're testing him out and everything, they show footage, actual stock footage of atomic uh, experiments, and we've all seen them. You know the buildings where the roofs just go flying off, and that you know they didn't have to do that. That was very serious and and realistic, and um, it's a very well put together film, uh, which we immediately should recognize that this is directed by Bert I. Gordon. Not his first film, but I mean, he's, he's got a lot of classic monster flicks, horror films. Uh, King Dinosaur, I believe, was, was his first or one of his first, which I can't honestly say if I've seen King Dinosaur. Uh, a film called The Cyclops, which we'll talk about shortly. Uh, Attack of the Puppet People. On into the 70s, he was still making films uh, like uh, Food of the Gods and Empire of the Ants. And in fact, just made a, a film in 2015, I believe. He, uh, I don't. I, I'm not familiar with the film. I don't know what budget he was working with. I assume probably not a big budget. It was probably a small, independent film. You know, it, of course, what he be Mr. Big is how he was referred to uh, for his initials. Is still with us, um, and he will be at uh, Monster Bash this year. Uh, that we'll be attending, and so we'll get a chance to uh, to see uh, the legendary Bert I. Gordon. Uh, live and in, in uh, living color uh, in, in Mars, Pennsylvania. So I think he did a, a wonderful job. This was his first movie for AIP. So this kind of started his association with AIP. And I think that clearly uh, he, he's got a tremendous amount of talent that he brings forth to the film, which is why, as you said, this stands out above others. There's a lot of thought that went into it. He also had his hand in the script. Right, uh, with a man named Mark Hanna, who interestingly wrote... Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah. So I would guess with only that information that the script, uh, the big influence was from Mr. Gordon himself <laughs> rather than Mark Hanna. Well, there was another writer, uh, George Worthing Yates. Right. He wasn't credited, I don't think, but then he wrote the sequel. You're right. And I think maybe he had a hand in, in maybe offering up some, some suggestions because if you look at his... Filmography. I mean, he, he was very familiar with big, giant monsters. He did them. Uh, it came from beneath the sea. Uh, he did Earth versus the Flying Saucers. He did Frankenstein 1970 with uh, Boris Karloff, in which I have this beautiful lobby card sitting right over here. No comment? No comment. Jeff, Jeff wants this lobby card so bad. We happened to, to go to a, uh, a uh, toy show, a, a toy and comic show in uh, St. Louis in the last month. I think it was, and uh, they had a fantastic lobby card poster vendor there, and no rhyme or reason, just stacks and stacks, and really pure luck of the draw. I, I just happened to, my stack happened to have a, a beautiful lobby card of uh, Frankenstein 1970 with Boris Karloff on it. So yeah, but you're you're not remembering the whole story. That that's not actually what I I care so much about. Yeah, it's very nice. I'd love to have it, but. On the way, I said, the only thing I'm really looking for is something that I can take to Monster Bash to have 
you know, any of them signed. So, you know, anything from I was a teenage Frankenstein, Kazieri Conway, and, or How to Make a Monster. And uh, so tell us what else you picked up while we were there. I picked up a lobby card from How to Make a Monster. Does not, it's not the one that has uh, Gary Clark and Gary Conway on it. It, it has, uh, my mind's gone blank, but the actor who played the, the, the mad scientist, uh, or not the mad scientist, the uh, makeup, makeup artist. artist. Yeah. Uh, but it has, of course, the Paul Blaisdell masks on it's a It really is beautiful, and it's got some nice wide open spaces, just perfect for uh, the two Garys to sign. So Yeah, and I think I walked away from there with a Batman comic book or something. <laughs> well, I, the, the problem is this, this particular vendor didn't take, uh, only took cash, didn't take cards, so... Yes. Yeah, so you wanted it more. You were willing to go to the ATM. So I, I walked across the parking lot to get cash out of the ATM. And in a moment of panic, when I was like, I, I was using my credit card, I was like, I, I, what's the PIN number for this credit card? And uh, yeah, thankfully, I, I, I did get it. So um, yeah, and it's, I, 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 I am ribbing Jeff on it, and he's going to kill me in my sleep probably and, and steal it. Uh, I'll probably have to keep an eye on that when we get to Pennsylvania. <laughs> so uh, speaking of the, the script, I, I think another thing that is more thoughtful, one, one I question, but I, I want to ask you if you think this is why. So he has flashbacks when he's first waking up after being hit by the blast, and he goes back to when he was in the Korean War. And his buddy gets shot in the face. That's pretty graphic, too. That is pretty graphic. That is graphic. Uh, So that coupled with the fact that we don't ever know what happens to the guy that crashed the plane that he went out to save. So I think that was all constructed just to show this is a good guy. And when he eventually goes on his rampage, you know, there's that transition. This is someone that was corrupted and became bad. You know, the fall of the hero um, so does that make sense to that you? Make, that why does, they did that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That does. That, that makes uh, makes perfect sense. Again, I think again more thought. I think into yeah into this movie. Um, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Glenn Manning is played by uh, Glenn Langan, who was in other films. Uh, 1939's Return of Doctor X, uh, the only Humphrey Bogart horror film you're ever going to find. Uh, he was in Dragonwick with uh, Vincent Price. Uh, and one of his last films was The Andromeda Strain from 1971. I think that may have been his last film. His fiancée, Carol Forrest, played by Kathy Downs. Uh, I think the two biggest claims to fame for her besides this film was Phantom of 10,000 Leagues and She Creature. We had uh, Dr. Paul Lindstrom, played by William Hudson. Uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, Man Who Turned to Stone, She Creature. Uh, and then Major Eric Coulter. Uh, was played by Larry Thor, which is a name that sounds so familiar to me. And then when I looked at his filmography, and, and nothing stood out. Hmm. Uh, he did lots of television work uh, or you know supporting roles in films. So, uh, and he's the one that's impaled by the hypodermic needle, Eric. Eric said, "Yeah." Yep. So there we go. And I don't again, Larry Thor. That name seems to stand out, but it, it doesn't appear that he's done anything. Again, very prolific, but nothing necessarily. Uh, despite his biggest classic piece of work, if you're in the genre, at least. It's interesting to me when you look at the cast and as we talk about the other movie, almost all of these people have been in similar material, and it's always interesting to see what they've been in. There's a lot of crossover here and there. 
and we'll probably talk about it in the next movie, but there is one person in War of the Colossal Beast that I couldn't find was in any, and that's unusual because usually you can find the connections. You know, yeah, sometimes I think these, some of these actors and actresses, they do one film, right? And then it's like, oh, well, you did good in this one. They, they can, sometimes they get typecast, or you see where they do a period of like two or three years where they do a lot of particular films in a genre, and then it, it's almost like they, they pull themselves out, right? And then they, they end up doing, you know, non-genre films. So, I mean, obviously, and again, a lot of these films are being made by the same studios. So some of them, once they get into the studio system, the studios, they're not necessarily under contract, but they start getting film work from these same studios. Um, now, I saw that this movie was, was released as a double feature, with a movie called Cat Girl from 1957, uh, which is apparently an official British remake of Cat People. I have never seen this. Really? Huh. Are you, are you familiar? I with am not movie? at all. Yeah, I, I have not heard of it. I, I, or I, I think I may have heard of it, but like I said, I, I, for whatever reason, I've never run across this film. Uh, and hmm. It's never been on a wish list of mine. And, but now when I saw that British remake of Cat People, it's intrigued me. So... Uh, and then again, I'm thinking it'd be an odd pairing. If it's a remake of Cat People, it just doesn't seem like a film that would go well with Amazing Colossal Man. So uh, I don't know. I'm kind of that's a film I'm, I'm, I need to do some research on. I'm kind, yeah. of, I'm kind of interested. The uh, the plutonium. The the it talks about the the, the first bomb. Uh, that this was like a plutonium test, but in fact, I mean, plutonium was used in the first A bomb uh, in 1945. Uh, which I guess is a, a bit of a of an error that that not a big one, and I guess you'd have to really know your know your stuff. And I think at that time period, I'm not sure too many people because a lot of what we we know now about the atomic bomb testing in the 1940s and 50s, you know, is stuff that was not well known at, at the time. Yeah, that must be the reason because I mean the, the attention to detail with some of these other things. I bet they just didn't know. Well, a lot of the atomic, you know, like the atomic testing was was not was not uh, widely talked about. My dad was involved in some of that uh, in the forties and fifties, you know, fifties. Called it Operation Greenhouse, and uh, uh, I have all of this stuff now. Uh, after my dad passed away, I have his official government identification badge as being part of Operation Greenhouse, and he was uh, a marine, but he was stationed on, on a ship, and they and uh, I have his diary from the time period. As they would go to these various islands and atolls, they were they were basically out of the Pacific, and they were, you know, testing all these different versions of, of the atomic bomb. My dad would talk about the different type of explosions he witnessed, the different colors. Uh, one would be yellow, another would be bluish green. They were different variations, I guess, of atomic bombs, hmm. which I'd never even really. I thought atomic bomb is an atomic bomb, right? But I guess there was, there was, uh, in, in the testing processes, I guess there was a lot of, you know, I guess maybe seeing what worked and what didn't, what was more effective, what wasn't. But the interesting thing, of course, is that my, my dad and everyone on the ship would be on the ship, uh, on, on the, on the deck of the ship witnessing the atomic bomb blast and the radioactive ash would literally basically go right over the ship and would rain over the ship. So my dad was thoroughly exposed to radioactive material. And what they would do, and this will kind of make you cringe a little bit, is they would, they, you know, the cover, the whole deck of the ship would be covered with this radioactive ash. So what do you do, right? You sweep it off into the ocean. 
literally, they said they would just give rooms and just sweep it off mm. into the ocean. Early 1970s, my dad gets a letter from the government um, saying that, well, you were exposed to radioactive material. You may be uh, uh, noticing uh, cancerous growths on your forehead and arms that were exposed. Um, and the government, of course, thank you for your service uh, and good luck. In fact, my dad was starting to experience that and did continue to experience it up until uh, his passing. He would get uh, cancerous growths on his arm and uh, his foreheads. His forehead, foreheads. <laughs> yes, my dad. My dad. <laughs> that was another little side effect. He developed three other heads. He did, he did. yes. Uh, you know, we love dad all the same. No, uh, and he would have to go get him, get him removed and, and they would do like this little freeze drying thing. Uh, that was something that he continued to have up until, uh, I think the last time he did anything was maybe a few years before his passing. Uh, but he, he, I know that he, he had some, even at the time of his death, cause they just weren't picking the time because he couldn't leave the facility and couldn't get him burned off. But, um, so I know this comes to my mind of, of the atomic bomb testing is that it was clearly there was testing in the 1950s. They were clearly doing some different types of, of tests with different chemicals and such. But this wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, a first attempt. This was, you know, that this was obviously going back in the 19, 1940s with plutonium being used as, as, as far back as 1945. So. And earlier when I described him getting uh, blasted, I said it looked like snow. Well, I'm sure that was the atomic ash. It was not really snow. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, I didn't know what to call it, but thank you. That, well, yeah, it was the, that's, that's, and that's exactly what my, my dad was exposed to. Mm. This basically would just come and float over the ship and land on everybody mm. and everyone, everyone on the ship. I mean, I'm sure that uh, ships that were closer or were a little bit more exposed probably had more side effects than my dad had. At least the government was nice enough to send a letter. Yeah. Thank you, my dad. How many years later? Uh, 20. 20 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, now this is actually based on a book which far predates the the atomic era. Uh, it was based on a, on a novel by Homer Eon Flint. I love that name. And don't, is that a real name? I don't know. Uh, 1928 novel called The Nth Man which was about a man who uh, grew to be 10, mi 10 miles high. Jim Nicholson of AIP Pictures, uh, or Interna American International Pictures, acquired the rights and then, of course, kind of was then loosely adapted by uh, Mark Hanna, uh, Bert uh, I. Gordon, and George Worthing Yates. Oh, so I w I'm curious. I'd like to find that because it probably wasn't... It probably wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't an atomic bomb that made him big and, you know, yeah, there could have yeah. just been a, a nugget out of that book that they took and And, and, I, and, I, and I don't know, I, I, I didn't do enough research as far as in the book, it was a little hard to find anything on it as far as what the this, what this story pertains to. How does this man become 10 miles high? I don't know. Uh, maybe it's it, the concept of a big man, I guess, maybe is what they call Yeah, it. and uh, when he's in the tent uh, with Carol early when he first gets finds out he's large, he talks about how big will I get? Will I get 10 miles high? And then how he might die because he wouldn't be able to breathe that high up and all that. That was interesting. Well, that which they resolved that when he basically stopped. Right, right. Point. So uh, and in your research, did you see that Dick Miller was... Uh, I saw that, time? yeah. That, the script, uh, one of the early scripts was a, more of a comedic 
elements to it. And uh, I think with Dick Miller in the lead role, it would have had to have been almost a come. I can't imagine Dick Miller. Love Dick Miller, uh, but I can't imagine him as the amazing colossal man. I, I, to me, it wouldn't have worked at all. No, I don't see that. Unless one of the other roles, but not unless it was a comedy. You know, that, yeah. that'd be the only way I could see that 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 would have uh, that would have worked uh, at all. And speaking of comedy, there's some humor in, in this too. Some that's not even unintentional. I I love when he's a, a lot of ha- this happens in the the tent. We keep talking about the tent scene, but he tells Carol that he was um, in his high school yearbook. He was voted the most likely to reach the top. <laughs> that's funny but I, I love all the I love tiny things like you know he they bring him a whole turkey and he hangs it you know holds it up yeah. in between his two fingers yeah, and he's got like, a tiny little book and I wondered if that was a was bible like a, yeah yeah it's like he's trying to read and, and he's trying to talk on the phone and and, and uh, yeah the the Turkey was the size of a chicken nugget to him. Yeah, know? and he uh, picks up an entire barrel of water, you know, and it's like a thimble size to him. And then I, I really like this in Vegas at the end when he's walking around, and this is old Vegas, and I guess it is the Strip. At first I thought it it wasn't, but then they finally said it was the Strip. Way different back then, but he goes to one of the casino hotels, and there's a crown and, you know, it would fit him. And he picks it up and takes it off. And I almost thought he was going to put it on, <laughs> but he didn't. Well, I know why he didn't, because later he goes to the silver slipper and there's a big rotating silver slipper. He seems a lot more interested in that silver slipper than he did in the crown. So <laughs> I'm wondering about Glenn. <laughs> well, you know, um, he'd been through a lot. Yes. You know, we don't know what effect uh, plutonium has on somebody. So... Some of the taglines, I was just thinking of giants and stuff. I loved some of the taglines. Savage giant on a blood-mad rampage. Uh, growing, growing, growing. To a giant, to a monster, when will it stop? Uh, never since King Kong, such a mighty motion picture. Uh, there were several others, so I thought that was some fun taglines they, they obviously used to, to, uh, to help sell the movie. And, uh, and fortunately, this is a movie that uh, I think we both recommend, not, not unfortunately, oh, yeah. we both certainly recommend this movie. Good luck trying to find it. Uh, this is one of those, as we talked in last month's episode, um, the rights issues are, are lost in the muck and mire. Uh, this movie has never been given an official uh, release. Now, it was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, both movies that we're talking about today were. But because this movie has never been released uh, you know, commercially to home, home uh you know, in any format, uh, it is harder to find. And, uh, in fact, uh, I think there is a, there's a version of it on YouTube right now, but it's not a good copy. They've zoomed in on the picture, they've made it sepia tone and they've sped it up. Um, so don't even waste your time watching that. You can find copies of it out there. Um, you'll have to, uh, if you go to eBay, you can find copies of it. Uh, it's going to be the bootleg market. Uh, the print that I have is, is a bootleg copy that was actually, uh, I, I remember vividly getting this from uh, uh, down in Tulsa at the Trek Expo. Uh, they used to have a video vendor down there. And uh, I think that it was a good copy. You know, with these DV, uh, DVR, DVDR copies, uh, depending on your, on your DVD player, uh, some of these, it's a gamble because some of them may or may not play. 
And I remember I had a, uh, another DVD player that this would not play. It, it would kept basically freezing up towards the last five minutes of the movie. Uh, but now the DVD player that I have is it works fine. So again, just a little helpful hint when you look for some of these uh, some of these uh, films out there. If you find a vendor that you you're getting good copies from, and I don't necessarily endorse bootleg copies, but when these movies you can't find them, um, and you've got especially with these films, and you've got somebody who owns the rights and is wanting to. Uh, basically bleed us dry of money. I don't have a problem going with a bootleg copy of this film. Somebody owns the rights and they're being greedy. Well, then I'm going to acquire the movie another way. And and uh, again, I don't necessarily condone bootleg films, but um, sometimes that's the only way we get a chance to see it. Now, obviously, I think these are two films that deserve to be on a DVD set together, but unfortunately they're not. So if we were to ever get a a, a better copy of Amazing Colossal Man, I think it would be great, but I think our chances of that happening are becoming slimmer and slimmer with each passing year at this point. So this was released, I believe, in October of 57. It got decent reviews when it came out. But if you go today to IMDb, it's got a 4.2, and I just don't... I mean, I mean, I get it, but I don't. I mean, I thought... I think this is so much better than a lot of the movies at that time and i just it's interesting it's kind of the opposite of a lot of movies that were were not well received then are revered now right by this right. it's kind of the opposite effect that's happening and i don't know if it's because maybe it was featured you know when it was featured in mystery science theater 3000 maybe that people just think that it needs to be ridiculed maybe it's the lack of availability uh people who haven't seen the film maybe the only way they've seen it is through Mystery Science Theater 3000 because it's never been given an official release. If the movie was to get an official release, maybe the maybe the ratings would bump up a little bit on that. I don't know. It certainly deserves more than that. Yeah, I mean, if we talk about ratings and percentages, we have to give them for the reviews we write on Downright Creepy and Boom Howdy, and it's so arbitrary and you know depends on your mood and all that. But if you think 1 to 10, 5 is average, this is above average at the least. This is above average. Uh, do we know how much uh, War of the Colossal Beast has? Yes, even less than that. It's even less like than that, okay. Three well, point then. something. Okay. Which, well, when we get there, I'm going to argue that too. I think they're both above average. I would say they're both. They're, yeah, clearly, uh, as we segue into War of the Colossal Beast, I mean, it's not as good a film as the original or the first film, but uh, yeah, better than, yeah, it certainly is better than, than a three or a four in these films. There's a lot of, of, of lesser films made in the genre during this time frame. In fact, you know, I mean, mentioning some of the films from some of these other uh, actors and actresses, like I mean, Phantom of 10,000 Leagues is, is, a, is not a great film. Um, uh, the Man Who Turned to Stone, while, you know, it certainly has a, an element of, of entertainment, is, is not as good a film as, as The Amazing Colossal Man. So, again... You know, I think it's I'm you know I'm going to chalk it up to the lack of availability. Uh, so it's people are, are seeing a ridiculed copy. I'm not a, a huge fan personally of Mystery Science Theater 3000. I know there's a lot of people out there who love it. I love watching these films without hearing all of the the various feedback. Um, that's just me, and I acknowledge that you know there are some films that are better than others. I, I've been to see some of the horror films and, and such with an audience. And in that environment, I don't have a problem with laughing at, at some of the, the crazy things that's happened in some of these movies. 
Uh, if you get a fun crowd together, it, it can be fun. Uh, for me, though, I've never been a big fan of sitting down and watching Mystery Science. I know I might have just ruined my credit with a lot of people, but I also know I know that uh, you know. Uh, I think Derek over at Monster Kid Radio has always said he prefers watching the, the films unadulterated. And but, have you listened uh, to two episodes ago on Monster Kid Radio when they did the Slime People? Yes, they talked quite a bit about mystery yes. science theater, and I've yeah, I've never. I just don't, and I know it's in good fun, but I just don't like making fun of the movies. I mean, I, I mean, I'll criticize and make a joke, you know, but that's all I. I, guess, I, love. I, think, I think when you're in a, in a theater environment, because I, I, you know, I go to Cinema Go Go in Lawrence, and you get a group of people, and there's always a few that are trying to to. They'll be very vocal. They'll, they'll talk during the movie. I don't know. I can. I appreciate that's fun. It's a fun environment, and uh, I mean, and obviously, I mean, like a recent one I saw there was the Tingler. I mean, there's some pretty funny moments in the Tingler, right? Uh, it's I, I can sit and watch that movie seriously. If I'm going to uh, watch a movie and have it kind of laughed at during some of the unintentional or sometimes intentional stuff that happens, uh, I, I would much rather do it. In, in an environment like Cinema Gogo, where we're uh, with a with a crowd uh, of people who are who are enjoying it, and we're all kind of laughing at the same. And I assume with drinks because it's at a bar. <clears throat> they do have drinks there. Um, you know, I honestly, this is a weird thing, and I know a lot of people love having uh, you know drinks now with movies. This has become a thing. And you know that I never do that. I I, I will always drink my water or, or diet Coke when I'm drinking diet Coke. Uh, I, I don't think that I've ever gone to movie theater and, and ordered a beer or, or alcohol. I don't know why. It's just, I always think I want to watch this movie with an entirely clear mind and I'm a cheap date. Sometimes a <laughs> couple of drinks in and I'm good. So, but I know a lot of people, that's the only way they can make it through some of these movies is if they, you know, have a bottle of bourbon with them. I think Nick Brown over at the B Movie Cast uh, has often said some of these movies are better with bourbon, and I may not disagree with him. Uh, I, I've seen a few films, uh, The Incredible Petrified World, which I think we talked about last time. That's a movie that would be greatly enhanced by bourbon. Uh, uh, it needed everything it, it could get. So uh, yeah, you know that's I, I enjoy you know when you're with a group of people laughing. Right, right, and I you know I've never been in a situation like that and I'm going to go to cinema a go-go with you sometime but you know just if I were sitting in a theater watching this and people were laughing I that would offend me because I like it so much well you know I, I, they you know some of the films like I said I was able to watch The Tingler and and not get offended when there was the, there was comments from the audience right. and people laughing um, and there was a movie now I can't even think of it now it had Cesar Romero in it and it was about a oh yeah the the uh, Lost World or Lost, Lost World. Continent. Lost Continent. Yes, not the Hammer. <clears throat> That's a movie that deserved to be laughed at, right? Because they're climbing up this mountain, and and it's one of those things where if you're watching it yourself, you might not laugh, right? And hey, it's got dinosaurs. It's cool. When you're with a group setting, you can't help but laugh when you realize that the only thing these people took as they're climbing up the mountain is apparently an endless supply of cigarettes because they are climbing this mountain and constantly saying, well, it's time for a break, and everyone, you know, you know, smoke them if you got them. And they're climbing up the same rock, a rock that I, God love the, the filmmakers because they filmed it from every possible angle, from the top, from the bottom, from the left to the right. 
and they're climbing the same rock from all these different angles and and people randomly fall off the cliff you know and and it's like momentary well that's unfortunate <laughs> let's get going after we have a cigarette break and you can't help but laugh you know uh, through some of these films yeah. and and I think I think you know these two films probably wouldn't be something that was chosen for cinema go because they do try to to stick with with films that are kind of in sometimes you just kind of know, like Attack of the 50-Foot Woman is a film that deserves to be chuckled at, right? The Tingler, while it's I, Vincent Price, I love Vincent Price, there's some certainly some silly elements. Yeah. So it, it can be fun. It can be fun. But I digress. Going back to the original comment, I think Amazing Colossal Man is a better film than what IMDb says. And I think part of it's just because it's just not as widely available as it, as it needs to be. And sometimes these films that aren't available on home video you can find them on YouTube. And because this is kind of caught up in that muck and mire rights issues, this is one of those films that you simply just, you can't find on YouTube in a good copy anyway. So any last words on this before we uh, take a break? Recommend it. Absolutely. Find find it however you can. It, It certainly is a great film. You don't need to see the sequel if you don't want to, uh, but they certainly go well together. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But if you just want to see one, See Amazing Colossal Man, and I think you'll have a good time. I agree. All right, well, let's uh, let's play the trailer for War of the Colossal Beast, and we will be right back after that. What that made that print is about ten times the size of a normal man. What happens to our world if massive, monstrous man-beasts like this invade us? Flown a captive to a West Coast metropolis in an army cargo plane, his arrival catapults the whole city into an ocean of fear. For this colossal beast is at war with the world, our world, a world his savage instincts can only hate. An airlift is being set up and food will be parachuted down to him. He'll be supplied with everything he needs. Get all the aircraft into the air at once. The Colossal Man is loose in Los Angeles. the civilized world in blood-freezing horror as the immeasurable power of this colossal beast threatens a war of brutality such as we've never known. All right, we're back. And one of the last things Richard said was you didn't need to see War of the Colossal Beast to watch and enjoy the Amazing Colossal Man. My question for you, Richard, do you have to see The Amazing Colossal Man to watch or enjoy War of the Colossal Beast? Considering that I saw this movie first many years ago um, and found it mildly entertaining, um, there's certainly... They give... I mean, there certainly starts off in, in, in The Colossal Beast. You know, Lieutenant uh, Manning is already grown, right? He's already a beast. 
no explanation as to, I mean, they talk about it, but I mean, it's not like we see the end of the previous film. He's not like, you know, in the water and coming out of it. I mean, he's just kind of, he's in a valley. So, um, I think you can watch this movie. They do give a flashback sequence that kind of fills you in on what happened. And you're not going to be lost watching this one. If you don't watch uh, amazing colossal man, uh, I think you will appreciate this movie probably a little bit better by knowing the character of Lieutenant Manning and how he became the Colossal Man, I think it's in that regards. I mean, you're you're going to be probably a little bit more invested had you had you see the first film. Uh, as it is by itself, it it seems um, a little uh, a little less impactful than it would be if you saw if you didn't see the original. Yeah, and there's no other characters that carry from one to the other. I I think they're pretty as entwined as they are. I think they are pretty independent as well. Uh, similar structure to the story. Instead of the, the fiance and Carol, we have his sister, uh, Joyce, who's the main, I guess the other main character, but she's not so convinced that they're going to find a cure. I mean, that ship has sort of sailed. However, her, her mission is to convince them not to destroy Glenn at this point, that he should be saved. And this is this is your first. Uh, if you see the first film, then you will know that this is the first plot hole, uh, or or you know, uh, I don't know if they're not necessarily a plot hole, but change a plot change in the fact that in the first film, it's referenced that uh, Glenn's fiance uh, Carol indicates that he has no existing family members, and yet here he has his sister. Uh, yeah, but I can explain that pretty easy. I mean, here's how much I like these movies. I've created a, a backstory for that. You know, he's estranged from his sister. They, My sister, there are times I would like to forget she exists. So, you know, maybe he just didn't tell. For whatever reason, he didn't tell Carol in the first movie that or he maybe, did have a sister. Maybe Joyce and Carol don't get along. And so there you go. Carol's just like, no, he doesn't have any sister. Exactly. Well, it's, and I can I can honestly relate to that. I... I uh, I do a little bit of that myself and my family. There's certain di- dynamics, so uh, I can understand that uh, that that could explain that. And it's not a it's it's not this huge gaping no no no, no. hole. It's just a uh, you know well okay this is a sister that kind of pops up out of nowhere, but she serves the essentially the same role as Carol did. Yeah, and you know, do we really know it's his sister? She says it is. I mean, maybe she's a spurned lover, and that you know, I don't. Anyway, now that, now that's a whole other plot point. That, that's, that's this, you know, the third film. These apparently. movies are so deep and complex, you don't know the layers of story. The layers of yes, story, yeah. yes, yes. But yeah. Exactly, who is Joyce Manning? Is she really, yes. So uh, this movie starts out similar to the other. There's also a truck racing down the road, similar to the first. Um, this time, though, it's in Mexico, and we'll find out that this person driving this boy, I guess, was being chased by... Glenn, the amazing colossal man, and it's interesting. Uh, Joyce is in L.A. and she's, I believe, maybe at a hotel. I don't remember, but she turns on KL- KTLA news, and there's news that uh, a man named Swanson is missing his pickup. It's been stolen in Mexico, and <laughs> they don't know what happened to it. Now, why would that make the news in Los Angeles? That's a really slow news day. Yes, yes. And I'm I'm thinking even by today's standards with social media, somebody missing a truck in Mexico is not going to make the news here, I don't think. But of course it's so that Joyce can hear 
that, uh, wow, I, you know, she thinks her brother probably took that pickup. And I guess there was mention that it sort of disappeared out of thin air because later on they find out it looks like it was just lifted straight up. Right, there's no tracks. There's a tracks going right into this little uh, ravine or creek. And uh, then all of a sudden that's, that's where it ends, right? So, yeah, it seems to have lifted. And, of course, there's been other missing trucks in the area. We come to find out. So this is not necessarily the first time that this is... Uh, this has happened. Now, of course, we don't, we, you know, we really don't see anything right at the beginning of the film. No, no. And I, I like that. That's effective, I think. And, of course, the, uh, the young boy is, uh, is in shock uh, because he has seen, uh, he's, he's seen something horrific. And uh, uh, they're not really getting a lot of answers out of him. And uh, so, so as, as we, we soon learn, of course, that the colossal man... Uh, did not die in the previous film. He never did find his body. He went into uh, they. I think there's a reference to that of how deep the the Boulder Dam was. They seem to indicate that it was miles deep or a mile deep or something. When in fact it's not that deep. So that you know, obviously they they you know how he survived. You you would just assume he went downstream, and because apparently they they could lose him at the drop of a hat anyway when he's walking around. Not a surprise that he's swimming down uh, a riverbed and they wouldn't be able to find him either. And, and he ends up in this uh, forbidden valley area that uh, leads to one of the, well, I think it's the first time we see him. Very creepy moment, I think, when they're, when they're at the top of the mountain and, and you hear him for the first time and you see him come out from behind, his head basically coming out from behind the mountain, and he has changed physically. Yes. The the fall altered his appearance a bit. He has, uh, I'm looking at a picture from Famous Monsters here, basically his his right eye is gone, it's a socket, and uh, part of his flesh uh, is gone, and so his, his mouth is all kind of curled and gnarled up, and his teeth are exposed, and continuing from what happened in the first film, essentially he he's a mindless beast now with a uh, horrific guttural sound that comes out of him. And he's basically, he, there's, a, there's, a, there's a junkyard of trucks. He's robbing the trucks for the, whatever food he can get a hold of and then just throwing the trucks aside. A really horrific scene, I thought. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a big leap, though, right? It's like hit the... Disfigurement to his face, um, I, I guess would happen depending if he landed and hit some rocks or something and didn't heal naturally. But uh, of course, there's a there's a bigger reason as to why we we have this this partially seen face of the colossal man and the other part of his face is disfigured. It's because Glenn Langan did not return for the sequel. I don't know the reasons why, but the uh, the character of Lieutenant Manning is now played by. Duncan Dean Parkin, it closely resembles him, I think, to a, to a point. Uh, and, and, you know, another part of the reason that they had to kind of hide his, his facial appearance is because of the use of the flashbacks. Uh, the flashbacks from The Amazing Colossal Man featuring Glenn Langan. So uh, that's a pretty blatant, they're showing the original actor, so you've got to try to cover up that you've got a new actor. Do in the you think show. really there was that much attention to continuity at that point? I mean, I have no time, no hard time at all buying that, you know, you fall from the top of a dam and you hit the 
bottom side of it face first, it's going to crush the side of your face in. And as they say, it didn't heal properly. Well, you think? Well, uh, you know, I I, I, I I totally buy that. And yeah, I don't know. We've seen I, too I, many I, other continuity lapses in other movies. I just... Well, I read this on the internet. Oh, well, I know I did and too. The internet I did too, but I don't doesn't buy it. lie. <laughs> um, you know, I, could they have had used this face for... Uh, maybe dramatic effects to kind of lure because now, of course, you know, he's gone from being the amazing colossal man to now he's a colossal beast and he's at war. Now, we have to mention that the expression of the face of the beast, uh, the colossal beast, is very similar to a film called The Cyclops, which I mentioned earlier. That was uh, done by Bert I. Gordon in 1957, the previous year. If you, if you Google and do a search, you will see that there is very similar features. The, the Cyclops is disfigured on the right side. You don't see a, uh, an eye socket exposed. It's basically a melted face, whereas here there's the, there's the eye socket. Actually, I think this is probably a bit more horrific. I think the Cyclops from 57 was a bit more uh, toned down, uh, but I think... And it's been a while since I've seen the Cyclops, but there is some similarities between the Cyclops and War of the Colossal Beast. I remember we looked this up, and I can't remember now. It's like the the Cyclops. It's in a valley, and there was some type of uh, of uh, experiments, radiation, and uh, in, in the like uh, from the ground, right? It was, right. It was a natural. It was a natural development. He's a pilot, I think, who crashes in the area. Um, I think it's a fiance and people go out looking for him and uh, they find that, you know, he has been basically irradiated and become this, this, this Cyclops creature. And there are similarities in the voice between the Cyclops and what we get here in the Colossal Beast, because again, they kind of lifted, not only did they take the, the makeup work and adapt it, but they lifted the, the guttural voices that were, was done by Paul Fries in the Cyclops is essentially reused again in War of the Colossal Beast. Okay, so I was not really aware of the Cyclops when we were doing this, and uh, the main actor who plays Glenn in War of the Colossal Beast, Duncan Dean Parkin, was in the Cyclops. That's the only other movie he ever done. Now, what are the chances that he actually played the Cyclops? Would you know the character's name if I found that? Um, I know, I think he, well, he plays the pilot, because that's the whole thing. Then he's not the... I don't, Cyclops. I, I know that uh, that he plays the pilot. I believe the missing pilot, um, who is the one who becomes irradiated. Right. So I mean, it's been a while since I've seen the Cyclops. So if I'm if I'm getting characters mixed up, I apologize. The Cyclops. There's a lot of similarities to to the overall structure. Um, that again, though, it's it, it you know the Cyclops is kind of centered in this in this, like this cliff or valley area. Uh, there's not really a, a rampage in the city, I don't believe. Cyclops is available on home video. Um, and in hindsight, probably we should have covered that film as well to kind of compare and contrast would have been a good idea. I know that that it is known for a, a graphic scene in which uh, an arrow is shot into the eye of the Cyclops uh, and blood comes gushing out. Uh, there are television prints that have that scene taken out and when the Cyclops was finally released, and I believe it was through the Warner Archive collection, the initial print uh, print run had that scene excised. They had basically the television syndicated print, 
and uh, everyone basically started screaming and hollering and saying, you took the best scene out of the movie. And so they went ahead and, and copies that you, you get now have the unedited version. So if you are buying direct to Warner Archive, you will get the, the uh, print-on-demand version will be the, the version that's unedited. However, if you're buying from a, from a, a vendor or you know, if you're buying through a seller on eBay, um, you need to be aware because you may be getting the edited version of the Cyclops. That a very similar look in, in, in appearance and sound, and I think that War of the Colossal Beast may have been influenced by the Cyclops, and that may very well be more so why they decided to incorporate the same appearance, maybe just trying to capitalize on the Cyclops and, and taking elements from the Colossal Man. The, what we've read on the Internet Shock surprise may not be hundred percent true, but it does. I mean, it could kind of make sense. Did they spend that much time thinking about it? Who knows? Um, I, I think it, one, it, it helps though cover up his appearance. Yeah, and I really, really like this makeup. I mean, yeah, it looks like the teeth on his right side are sort of on top of his lip rather than coming out of his mouth. But I, I love it. I mean, we've got this magazine up here looking at it and. Uh, I like the original one better, but I, I don't know. I, that's part of why I like this movie. And, you know, I'm ultimately going to say, I like it as much as the amazing colossal man. I, and I think, you know, making up for his shortcomings to me is that this is more of a real monster. I mean, he looks monstrous. He's horrible, disfiggered. I, I love it. It's one of my well, favorite. He, he, he has no recollection of memory or, or he's just, he is a mindless beast, but and that's how they try to save him is by confronting him with memories of his past life to see if that sparks anything and brings back his humanity. Well, they, they initially, they capture him by drugging some bread, uh, which I thought was rather humorous as to, you know, essentially, uh, I don't know, they're, they're creating this, this drug bread, and, and that's a big gamble to hope that he's going to eat this thing and immediately it's going to take effect and he's going to... Uh, going to fall asleep and and does he does he not land and, and kill the poor poor guy? Do you see this because there's the they're there and I can't remember if he's that character is seen again in the rest of the movie. But he he runs away. I'm getting out of here and Colossal Beast kind of comes and he falls. The, the the man falls on the ground and then the beast falls and it appears as if he falls right on top. Oh, of I missed that. That would be great. Though. Uh, and I can't <laughs> honestly say that if that if that character came back. Again, I, you know, I, I totally kind of spaced it off. So uh, it kind of, I was laughing. It's like, that kid's got, the guy's going to get smashed. And then it's like, oh, there he goes. And Well, you didn't say what I thought you were going to say. So these are loaves of bread and they're eh, maybe a little bit big. They're not giant loaves of bread. And so how much, how many drugs would have to go into these loaves of bread to knock out the colossal beast? I assume a lot. But you know what? Those people can taste the bread, see what it tastes like. Did you see that? They tasted it. I'm not. They did. They did. They tasted the bread. So that, that should have like killed them like that. You would think. You would think if it's enough to knock him out, you know. Yeah. There's. Yeah. That's another one of those those plot points. You just want to look the other way. Now there's some similarities that you know. Of course, they have him captured. He's he's now in a big building. So uh, they're you know trying to to come up with a way to help him. Uh, well, he's not just in a big building. This. This is another thing I thought was really funny, and I would, yeah, I don't know if they would have thought it was humorous, but it, it's humorous, but in a, a good way. So they don't really know what to do with him. 
once they apprehend him. So they call Washington and they get a, a congressman, I guess they're talking about Congress. And he goes, well, no, 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 this really needs to go to the Department of Medical Research. So, you know, the, the scene switches, someone is on the phone there. No, 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 this is really Department of Health and Welfare. And it gets back to Congress. And then finally they punt it to the Pentagon. So no one really knows what to do with him. I, I thought that was funny. But they have flown him back into the United States, and luckily, conveniently, coincidentally, there's an empty hangar at the That's airport. True. That's, That's the perfect place to put him. That's the perfect place to put him. They have to chain him up, too. Yeah, they chain up. him. This Well, they first rope him, and they the stab him, hold that, him. Exactly. Then they later chain him, and they're trying, they try to do this projector above, and they're trying to basically jog his memory and, and help him remember that he's actually Lieutenant Manning, and... This is where I think his his sister gets a little annoying at times because she's like, you know, constantly seems like she's just screaming and yelling and nagging. You've got to remember. You've got to remember. Remember the red bicycle. Remember (laughs) your first high school date. You know, and it's like, it's like that point I just kind of laughed. I said, you know, I'd love to see him just break the change and just, (laughs) you know, Hulk smash him right there. I thought that would have been funny. Um, and but we, there's, you can tell he, he gets agitated, and you begin to wonder: Is he really beginning to? to he has flashes of memory, right? I mean, so yeah. He, he, this he, is basically this, where the flashbacks. That's where the flashbacks comes. come in. So he's remembering who he was and what happened, but it it aggravates him. It upsets him, and so uh, you think that you know probably in his mental state he's not really able to fully understand what happened, but he knows he's he's not happy with what happened. Uh, um, here's another funny part, and. It's obviously I'm pointing out more flaws in this movie, but I I don't know. There's something charming about him. I love him. So he's having a flashback, right? And he sees himself getting irradiated and growing and all of that. Well, in the first movie, there's a scene, uh, and both movies have a certain element of some type of news reporter or television reporter that's sort of reporting along the way of what's happening. So in the first movie, as... He comes into Las Vegas. This reporter is in the studio and decides, well, let's look out the window and see. And she sees him in the distance. How could that be one of his memories in the second movie? I thought that was interesting because that's part of the flashback. I'm like, how did he know she was in there looking at him? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, I I like this one. This, This movie has, I think, more action in it. Definitely. Uh, And I think that was by design. You know, AIP wanted something that was a bit more action-oriented. They wanted a bit more dramatic, which is why they came up with War of the Colossal Beast. And in the original ad campaign, despite the fact that we now know that this is a sequel to The Amazing Colossal Man, they didn't market it as a sequel. They they marketed it as essentially its own, um, you know, standalone film, which it could be. Again, I think I think with the the incorporation of the flashbacks. You don't have to see the first film, certainly, but it, but it, uh, it certainly is fun to watch both back-to-back. And I, I read that, too, and that's curious to me. Why wouldn't they promote it as a sequel? I mean, it, the first one was successful. It, we said it got decent reviews. I mean, good Lord, today they wouldn't waste any opportunity to connect no. a movie to yeah, another. I don't, I don't, you know, I mean, again, other than I think this one was a bit more action-oriented. So, I mean, the fact that the first movie was successful, but maybe they wanted to really... Um, set this on a different course, maybe, you know, just say, well, we're just going to promote this separately. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, hey, I agree. It doesn't seem to, to make, uh, make a lot of sense. And you mentioned them, uh, 
playing up the action and all of that. The tagline on the actual movie poster says, see a 60-foot giant destroyed. Which I think he, he so they, 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 he grew 10 feet then, because wasn't he? He was 50 feet. No, I think he was 60. They were was pretty 60? consistent maybe, with that. Maybe I, maybe I had that down wrong. I thought he was 50. He's, uh, yeah, maybe, no, I'm pretty sure it was 60. Because, I, I mean, there, there's another point that they, that they conveniently overlooked in the fact that there was a reference that, you know, his, that he was essentially dying, right, in the first film. And that his body wasn't keeping up with, with all of the change. His heart wasn't growing because it has a single cell. And it, the rest of the body has multiple cells. Exactly. And so, uh, theoretically, then, this takes place several months later. He should be dead by this point, if their original prognosis was correct, that, that his heart would have, would have exploded. It would have given out, right? Uh, what he wouldn't be able to, to sustain. So... Obviously, you have to overlook that in the plot. You can just assume that the doctors were wrong, didn't know what they were talking about, something they're not familiar with. But clearly, uh, uh, one of those little plots that we're just going to forget about because we need to keep we need to keep Glenn alive, right? We need to we need to make him the colossal beast. So, and I do want to confirm he was sixty foot tall. And here's another note I had: I love this scene there when they're hunting for him. They find a footprint finally, and somebody says, "Well, that." footprint would have to mean that he's that man is 60 foot tall and Joyce says Glenn is 60 foot tall as if there's a bunch of 60 foot tall people and why Glenn is 60 foot tall yeah she you know again like I said there was she had her moments right where and, and that really I'm just more I'm thinking this through there, there's a reason that maybe you know Glenn just got <laughs> exactly I'm telling you I don't have a sister I, I don't know who you what who I'm you know what you're talking about so this was uh uh, pre-packaged uh, as a double feature with uh, Attack of the Puppet People, which is interesting because a, a clip of The Amazing Colossal Man is incorporated into Attack of the Puppet People in the drive-in scene. So, uh, again, interesting that they wouldn't want to market more of the Colossal Beast in connection with The Amazing Colossal Man, yet clearly they're incorporating a clip into Attack of the Puppet People. So that that's kind of an interesting little trivia, tidbit, a little tidbit of trivia. Uh, your favorite little gimmick is, is we get a chance to see this at the end of the movie. Uh, of course, uh, we've got uh, the beast eventually breaks loose, goes on a rampage. We've got war. This is where the end of the film, it, it's, there's, there's this moment where, you know, he begins, he basically, you know now, he knows kind of who he is. It's the only line that he speaks in the entire film uh, where he finally sees uh, his sister, and he calls, you know, calls Joyce. her name Joyce. And again, supporting the theory that his sister drove him nuts. The very next thing he does is he kills himself. Um, and that's where we get the transition from color to black, or from black and white to color. He uh, he, and it's not a smooth transition actually. It's a very jump in, in scene. But he uh, he grabs a power line and uh, essentially electrifies himself to the point where poof be gone he disappears right in front of us um for a film that actually had i think good makeup good special effects and everything that ending was was seemed so tacked on and seemed i felt that it was not a smooth transition to color and i think simply making him disappear to me seemed like a very cheap ending I, Did, I I missed that he just disappeared because I just remember ending with a shower of sparks from the 
pole, but he did disappear. He, he just kind of disappeared. Really? Wow. Yeah, he he, he disappears. Um, Maybe I blocked that from my memory. But you know what? Remember I told you last time that I had recorded these off of IFC channel, I think, and how it ran yeah. long, and I thought I missed the end, but it was actually at the beginning Back of the next. Down. Right where this movie ends, and he grabs the poles, it stops. So, yeah, it was choppy for me, because then when I started, it's in color on the next <laughs> section. So... But it so really it wasn't done well. I, I didn't I, get to see it. Uh, I don't think that it was done well. I think no. there's it, it, the 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 transition from black and white to color, not as well done as as the as the gimmick was done in other films. Like mm-hmm. even if you look at I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, I think the transition was smoother there, and and the transition I think was very smooth in How to Make a Monster. I think when you look at at this one, it's a me. It's yeah, as if it is. As if it wasn't very well, it wasn't very well done, uh, but very definitively, this is you know the end of the colossal beast. If he has electrified himself and he's like essentially vanishes, he's just like electrifies and poof, he's gone. Uh, they should have at least had him explode and then giant pieces of skin like land on people and knock them down and stuff. That would have been cool. That would have been cool, and uh, and you would have had parents screaming out of the theater <laughs> true, in 1958. True. I thought this this was certainly a fun film. Um, in some ways, I think it is it's it's a little better as far as as action goes. It's a little better than Amazing Colossal Man. Amazing Colossal Man is, I think, a better made film um, for the most part and, and tells perhaps a more cohesive story. But War of the Colossal Beast, I think, has more of a B movie fun element to it. Yeah, and it's it's. 10 to 15 minutes shorter than the first one and it doesn't have that gap that I had in the first one where I'm like alright come on let's go on Rampage now the the poster I love for War of the Colossal Beast he's holding a bus that's over a, that's his head a pretty, that's a pretty scary scene we skip yeah. that that's before yeah. the ending it's at the same place uh, Griffith Park in Los Angeles he does actually pick up a bus there's actually kids in it you actually see them being jostled about while he's holding this over his head I, I loved it and then that's and that is where he transitions because of course Joy shows up and is not putting and he so down, sets it safely down, down yeah. and he sets it safely down yeah have, having again that time period and and you're dealing with with kids in a bus potentially falling to their death that's actually pretty intense for 1958 monster films right I mean you think of the giant bug movies and stuff you know certainly there's some sometimes where you know, kids are put in peril, but this is like a, a bus of kids that's being jostled around that if it, that if he lets go of that bus, they're dead. There's, there's not going to be one child that's going to live or at least be happy about it because they're going to end up crippled and, and mangled in this, you know, horrific bus fire. And, and, and uh, if we could, you know, if you and I were doing the end of this film, We'd have had dead children everywhere. I want them falling out the window like they are in the poster. Exactly, they'd be falling out. You would, you would have, you know, fleshy parts just get. Perhaps we need to do a remake. More the class. Let's do it. Let's do it. That's such a good climax because that is such a high intensity moment of danger. It's much better than than Amazing Colossal Man. Yeah, yeah. Like again, I love the first film, but this one's amped up the the excitement level. Uh, which you don't always get in this time period in the sequels. You know, sometimes the sequel is a little paler than the original. Of course, nowadays everyone tries to make the sequels bigger and better and splashier. But uh, I think with with the War of the Colossal Beast, I think they succeeded, and uh, it is certainly an easier movie to get a hold of um, because it was one of the films that 
was able to be released for home video. So this this got the Mystery Science Theater treatment. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of people's only exposure to it is through there. But uh, it is available out on, on DVD, and it's paired with uh, The Spider hmm. uh, in the uh, Sam Arkoff collection. You can also... There's also... Uh, quite a few bootleg versions of this uh, uh, out there as well. So, and again, um, I think this is on YouTube, but it's not a version you want to watch because, again, I believe it's been uh, they zoom in on the picture, so there's elements of the picture missing, and I think they sped up the soundtrack. So, um, that's something with with YouTube you got to be careful. Is a lot of people are trying to get by the copyright issues, right, with some of these films. So they they put a border around the movie or they compress it for time. I guess it helps them get by the copyright issues because it is not uh, a representation of the, of the original film. That's, that's their kind of, and I think there's some validity to that. It's like, it's their version of the film because it's, it, the soundtrack has been sped up or, you know, there's borders around the pictures or what have you. Hmm, or if that's why some of the people who upload films on YouTube will put a sepia tone color on it. It's not true black and white. That actually gets a lot of these movies through the YouTube filters. That's why a lot of, of television shows will pop up um, with borders around uh, the picture so that it's it's uh, skirting around very questionably, but still skirting around the, the rights issues. So I wouldn't watch at least the versions that I found on YouTube uh, are not the way to watch this movie. Take the time and effort. Uh, buy the copy of the DVD, get the legal version of it, and uh, you'll be pleased with it. And you get the Spider, which it's been a long time since I've seen that, but that movie's uh, fun, as I recall. So, yeah. and uh, Sally Fraser, who plays uh, Joyce in War of the Colossal Beast, is in the Spider as well. Now, what about uh, some of the other actors? You have a major Mark Baird. You know what what, what else he's done? Roger, yeah. Roger so, yeah, Roger Pace, Major Mark Baird. He. He is the one I mentioned earlier that has been in no other genre. I mean, nothing even stretching to being horror or science fiction. Uh, Sally, I believe she's the one. I, I, it may be bad that I don't know. One of these women is well-known for being in these movies. I think it was Sally Frazier. It Conquered the World, The Spider, uh, Duncan Dean Parkin. We talked about him already was only in The Cyclops. That was his only movie, period. Uh, Dr. Carmichael in War of the Colossal Beast, Russ Bender. Definitely two fun films. Yep. Definitely uh, worth checking out, adding to your collection. Um, if you had to pick one, you could only take one with you to a desert island where you've got a DVD player, which would you watch? I, You know, I would probably go with War of the Colossal yeah, Beast. Yeah, I think I would too. It, it, on a fun factor. Yep. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a little more fun than, than The Amazing Colossal Man. Again, not as well made. But not it's not a huge step down either, and and certainly yeah, from the fun factor, it's it's got it's got a bit more action. You've got the the grunts and groans coming from the beast, which kind of that are creepy, and you got that whole scene. Like I said, there's some cool scenes in here that you don't have an equal to in the original. Yeah, there's a big thumbprint on one of the trucks. I thought that was cool. Um, the, the graveyard of trucks, and then when his head pops up over the hill, it's yeah. creepy. And then I think uh, they have to order ten gallons of plasma because he's lost yes, blood. Yes, and uh, that was a funny scene. Definitely, we're definitely, uh, definitely. Uh, you know, they did pay attention to some details in this one and some fun elements they added to it. So uh, definitely, uh, definitely worth checking out. Uh, 
or The Colossal Beast and The Amazing Colossal Man. I think uh, I agree. Two fun films indeed. Yep. All right, then let's take uh, one more break. When we come back, we'll have new business. And I'm not sure who it's going to be, but we're going to play an ad now for one of the other podcasts on the Phantom Podcast Network. There are a ton of great podcasts, adding new ones all the time. It's really growing into something. So here's one you might like to listen to. Hello, I'm Insane Mike, the host of Attack of the Killer Podcast. And I'm here to tell you about our show, Attack of the Killer Podcast. It's about a group of friends who openly discuss horror movies. It is a very fun show, and we discuss various horror topics. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you may even learn a thing or two. Here's what the critics are saying about Attack of the Killer Podcast. Brutal, evil, ghastly beyond belief. So check out our show at attackofthekillerpodcast.com or stitcher.com or even at the Phantom Podcast Network at downrightcreepy.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Attack of the Killer Podcast and on Twitter at AOTKP. Thank you. All right, we're back. And for new business, we'll go through our birthdays, release anniversaries, and upcoming DVDs and Blu-rays, as well as give you a little hint of what's coming next time. I think we need, if this is going to be a regular thing, I think we need some theme music for birthdays. I know we can't use happy birthday unless you want to pay the royalties for doing it. But There's the uh, Beatles song. Yeah, yeah. Like, say it's your birthday. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Is it like a monster version of... Yeah. Uh, we need to check. I th- oh, I think wait, wait. Okay. Go. I know this perfect sound clip we could do yeah. is um, the sound clip from uh, Creep Show. From the opening segment. No, I guess that's Father's Day. He wants his Father's Day cake, so that wouldn't uh, count. I thought that was birthday cake. Yeah. Well, There's got to be some horror birthday clip out there that we could... That's, yeah, that's our mission. Yep. That's, our, that's your mission. Oh, great. The, the man with, with, the, uh, with the, the programming. Yes, yes. Find, find us a good uh, clip that we can yeah. incorporate into... Yeah, as we go on and get a little more maybe regular parts of the show and all that, I think that'd be fun, so... Anyway, well, we're recording on April 1st, and today's a big day for two birthdays. Uh, Edgar Wallace, who is at least half responsible for King Kong, if not more so, and Mr. Lon Chaney. They were both born today. Oh, wow. uh, it would be happy. That's right. Yeah, because I, I one time was going to do a, a Lon Chaney month in April for, for uh, Monster Movie Kid. I never did do that. And uh, we've got a few notable birthdays coming up in April. April 4th, Anthony Perkins. Norman Bates, April 5th, Betty Davis. We included Joan Crawford last month, Betty Davis this month. She did some, uh, a couple of Hammer films. Yeah. Uh, the Nanny yeah, the and nanny the Anniversary. And anniversary, yeah. The Nanny is particularly creepy. Uh, Roger Corman, same birthday as Betty Davis, April 5th. Uh, talk about Bird Eye Gordon, Roger Corman, and then also in April on the 24th, William Castle. So wow, got some, some big, some big hitters this auteurs month. there this month. Uh, Roy Ashton on the 16th, the hammer makeup, okay, famous yeah, yeah. for that. Uh, and then very appropriate, and I don't know if that's why they have them at this time of the month, but on the 22nd is the uh, birthday of Rondo Hatton. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, I'm sure that's, gonna, that's probably why they do it. 
need we need we say? I, I was just going to ask. We're going to take a little uh, derailment here. Have you voted yet? Have you done your votes? I have voted. No, uh, I have I, not. I, I discovered Rondo Hatton several years ago, and and I honestly can't remember how I discovered it. Uh, but the Rondo, Rondo Hatton Awards are are fun for a lot of uh, reasons, uh, as Derek over at Monster Kid Radio often says. It, you can use it as and to create your own wish list of things that you missed. Absolutely. Miss. That's why I haven't voted yet. I'm going through and I'm looking at each of the websites that are nominated. and It's it's movies and and books. And there's, I guarantee you, if you look at the list of everything nominated, you will find something that you haven't seen or something you haven't read that you want to put on. Because this really is the best of the best. And uh, uh, it's a lot of fun to vote. It's easy to do. Honestly, if you just Google and type in Rondo Hatton Awards, you'll you'll find where you need to go. And uh, there's a couple this year that I think feel people are campaign campaigning for, rightfully so. Do we want to mention those? Absolutely. Or, okay, yeah, so I you think, talk yeah. about Vince. Vince Rotolo um, is uh, one of the most premier uh, podcasters that that we had. We lost him last year. Uh, he was the uh, host of the B-Movie cast. He launched that in, in 2006 at the dawn of the, of the podcasting era. Had such a, a friendly, unique style. Uh, he was a, a true monster kid like the rest of us. He was just a big kid who, who loved monster movies and, and movies of all genres and, and music and anything to go along with it and toys and, and you name it. Again, he was just the monster kid of all monster kids. And we want to get him into the uh, the uh, Monster Kid Hall of Fame, uh, which is where uh, we tried last year doing it. Well, in the past, Vince, you know, just felt very uh, humble that he would even be considered for anything. And he thought, no, I'm, that's not me. He says, no, nah, I'm not good enough to become you know, the Monster Kid of the Year, I think is what we had tried to at one point. He needs to be in the Monster uh, Kid Hall of Fame. Uh, Vince was recognized at the Monster Bash last summer. And I think this would just be the, the kind of crowning achievement. Um, the B-Movie cast continues. Uh, his wife, Mary, who uh, I, I uh, communicated via email with a few weeks ago, is, is doing uh, well. Her and I certainly understand about losing a spouse, and so she is doing incredibly well. And I think she's actually, I gave her all the, the kudos and credits in the world for her to continue to keep the podcast going uh, with Nick Brown and, and uh, Juan Ortiz, it's it's absolutely amazing because she is essentially she is sitting in the studio where her and Vince sat in, and she's you know running the control board and stuff. She's learning all of this stuff, and I can't imagine she's doing it in, in to to honor Vince because she felt like that's what Vince would have wanted. Uh, but I know that that's got to be uh, that's got to be incredibly hard at times. So I think. Um, Recognizing Vince with this honor uh, is is absolutely the right thing to do. So if you if you don't vote for anybody else in the Rondo Hatton Awards, you, you take the time to get in there and, and vote for Vince. Just do it once because don't do it twice because they'll catch you and your votes won't count. So do the right thing, vote once. You know it doesn't take that long. Take the time to look at the other categories too. But certainly we're campaigning for Vince to get Monster Kid Hall of Fame. This is I feel our best chance to get him in, and hopefully it happens. 
I've got a little campaign, not nearly as worthy or as important as that, but uh, Unsung Horrors is nominated yeah, for one of the books. I trust you cast your vote for that. You don't have to tell me, but I, you know, I trust I, that you did. I, you know, I, I've got a lot of friends in, in different categories. Yes. Uh, filmmakers, Christopher R. Mims' film, Worskito Nazi Hunter uh, is up, and... Uh, you know, there's there's other films, and and uh, my good friend Steve Sullivan, um, uh, Stephen D. Sullivan is is out there as well with with uh, you know nominations, and uh, Derek, of course, has has been nominated for. And they don't call it podcast; it's like media multimedia. Multimedia. He, of course, is a previous winner, and by God, he needs to get that again. Monster Kid Radio is is definitely the premier. Uh, of all monster podcasts out there, he, the time and effort he puts in that is simply amazing. So, you know, there's there's a lot of of, uh, of good people out there nominated, and so uh, uh, I, I will certainly hype up Unsung Horrors to the Moon and Back. I absolutely love that book. That book had a lot of time and effort. It's a beautiful book. What was your favorite article in there? Uh, there was there was a lot of different articles in there. Uh, no, you got two articles on, on, and to uh, to I actually my mind is starting blank as to the movies that you did. What movies did you cover in that? Frogs, Frogs that's and right. yes, that's right. Dirk Benedict is going to be uh, at Crypticon, Kansas City, in July. Uh, of course, for me, a bigger claim to fame is Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica. That's I grew up watching him. Yes, I mean it, it's a beautiful book. It's definitely worth the time and effort to to uh, to get your copy of that. Mine is autographed. Yours probably won't be, so mine will be better than than yours out there. But you need to have it on your bookshelf. So many great books come out. Uh, sometimes they get lost in the shuffle, and so uh, I've certainly have hyped this up before over at uh, Monster Movie Kid, uh, and uh, highly recommend uh, highly recommend you check out. And Sung Horrors, as well as, as checking out those, the Rondo yeah. Hatton Awards. And uh, again, above all else, vote for Vince. Uh, we'd love to see him get that honor. Uh, uh, you don't have to vote in every category. So if you only want to cast your vote for Vince, you can do that. Because you may not know. Uh, you may not know what the best commentary was. Or, uh, you know, if you, if you don't know any of the particular uh, films or, or books or what have you. Uh, and you don't have a preference, then uh, you, you can skip over a category, and your vote will still count, even if you vote for only one thing. So, uh, and it's easy to do. So, uh, you know, just uh, again, I, I don't. The website's a little bit complicated, I think. So, just go out there and find uh, Rondo Hatton Awards, and, and you'll be able to find it. And if not, uh, go to uh, my website, kccinephile.com. A few weeks ago, I. Uh, I did an article on Vince Rotolo, and, and the link that you need is right in that article. So go check it out. All right. Uh, a few big movies came out in April over the years. Uh, King Kong, we mentioned earlier, Edgar Wallace, was thir- uh, April 7th, 1933. Bride of Frankenstein premiered in Chicago, April 19th, 1935. House of Wax, April 25th, 1953. The Thing from Another World, April 27th. 1951, and let's bring it full circle. My sister's birthday is April 27th. I mentioned my feelings towards her sometime. That kind of goes with the thing from another world. So, you know, <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, she'll never listen to this. So, yeah. Uh, and then also uh, on April 27th, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, not the original Gojira, 
but the Raymond Burr version premiered in the United States. Which is still fun. I mean, yeah. once you see Gojira, obviously I think most people will say that's their go-to, but King of the Monsters was the only version we saw for decades here in the States, yep. and that there's always it's always fun to see that one, which was just recently on Spinguli last month. So Yeah, we don't do anniversaries of deaths here, but there is one thing I do have to mention. It, it will have passed by the time you hear this, but tomorrow, which for us is April 2nd, was the anniversary of the last airing of the last episode of Dark Shadows in oh. 1971. A, a future topic uh, yes. on this uh, on this uh, podcast. We'll, we'll definitely be covering Dark Shadows sooner than later. Uh, you just purchased a, a, a new uh, new paperback today, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I found uh, one of the uh, paperbacks that I'm missing uh, in my series. Uh, there are many. Yeah. We went to a, a local convention uh uh, if you follow my blogs, you heard me talk about the Free State Comic Con, which is in Lawrence uh, in the fall, and uh, the organizer of that uh, puts on another show uh, called FanCon, which is uh, a little d- different version uh, of, of the convention, uh, not as many creators, and so uh, whereas I'm a guest at Free State Comic Con uh, for my work in the Basement Subletter Forum magazine, uh, I was just a mere attendee today. Spending my oh, you weren't a mere attendee. You uh, you dropped a, a buck there. I you know I, I stayed mostly within my budget until I found I actually I stayed a hundred percent of my budget, uh, which was uh, much much smaller than I've spent in the past. I was a good boy until I found the Witching Hour, uh, the DC comic series uh, issue number three, uh, for a good price for the good quality that it was. So I will publicly thank my friend Jeff here for loaning me the, the cash to purchase that because the poor guy running the booth there could not figure out how to run <laughs> his card machine. And, uh, yeah, that's I picked up some nice horror comics, uh, Dead of Night, number one, and uh, it was a, we had a good time. We had yeah. a good time. So um, we're, we're just uh, gearing up for Planet Comic Con here in Kansas City uh, that will have come and gone by the time our next show comes around. Do you see there was another announcement? Uh, two women from... Some show, yes. Which it, it was big enough that I thought, "Wow, they're still announcing people." They're still close. announcing people. Yeah, I can't. It's a. I can't remember the name of the show either. And it's. I know it's. It's not one that's going to directly affect my pocket. No, but, no, no, uh, no. But it's a decent they, they, draw for somebody, probably. Yeah, this they've got a lot of good names, and it's a big three day event. It has grown exponentially in recent years. Uh, last year there was seventy thousand attendees uh, when they brought in Stan Lee. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, to see what they do. I, I, I've got my list of, of conventions and things that I'm attending this year. Uh, besides Planet Comic Con, we, we know the Monster Bash and then Crypticon Kansas City. And I, I committed to going to uh, Air Capital uh, Comic Con in, in my old home of Wichita in November. Uh, I will, I've chosen that over uh, going to Kansas City Comic Con here in Kansas City. Oh, no, I didn't know you made that's like Sophie's choice. I didn't. Well, know you know, my I, no. my friends uh, that I've known for a while uh, put on the show in Wichita, and they had selected that date long before Kansas City Comic Con selected theirs. And so, uh, out of loyalty to them, and I just show I, I really want to see their show down there. So I decided, yep, I'm going to head south and, and check out that show in mid November. So uh, if I have any convention money left by that point. <laughs> All right, so finally let's end with some releases that are coming out. Um, Not that many this year. Shout Factory, uh, again, continues uh, to pump them out in June. Uh, On the 20th, we have Island of Terror. 
Um, the 27th, Angry Red Planet and the Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake. Usually these movies I haven't heard, oh, I haven't seen for sure. I may have heard of mine and I know Angry Red Planet. This is a big thing I've been reading on some of the blogs I've uh, been reading, and I'm not a Paul Nashy fan, not that I don't like him. I just have not been exposed to his movies. Well, there are several Blu-rays coming out uh, this year. Yeah, there's a lot. And uh, the first one is June 20th. There's a, a Paul Nashy collection from uh, Scream Factory. Yeah, I know that uh, that Rod over the Nashy cast is is obviously, you know, the premier Nashy, Paul Nashy podcast. I'm sure there's other podcasts that have covered his movies, but yes, Paul Nashy is someone that I personally have never been able to get into. I've seen some of his films. I think I have a few actually downstairs. I think uh, the Werewolf versus the Vampire Women. I think is the name of it. No, that doesn't sound right. Uh, maybe it is. Anyway, uh, but it's a big year for Paul Nashy because uh, a lot of his films, being foreign films, uh, a lot haven't. I mean, he's done so many films. A lot haven't even been released officially here in the states. So it is for Paul Nashy fans. Yeah, it's a it's a big year. It's a renaissance year for you. Blue Underground is releasing at the end of May. Christopher Lee at his sinister best with uh, Blood of Fu Manchu and Castle of Fu Manchu. And then I've never heard of a studio, The Film Detective. I am familiar with it. Yeah, they're releasing something May 23rd called Voodoo Black Exorcist. I think they're more along the lines of, of bootleg films, if I'm correct. I, oh, could, really? be, I could be wrong. So. Huh. <laughs> Voodoo Black Exorcist. Yeah, I, and I, I don't have it noted on my list. I did look it up to make sure it qualified, and it sounded interesting. It looks like a Spanish film. It's early 70s, I believe. Okay. Well, so, yeah. Uh, There's a fan out there for it. I'm I willing to bet. I guarantee you. Are you adding Caltiki to your collection this month? You know, I don't know. I can't tell you how many times, almost daily, I, I go into Amazon or wherever, and I want to do a pre-order. I want to buy something, and just in my head comes the words Monster Bash. Monster Bash. And I could be wrong because I've been bitten by this before, but I think that most of these DVD releases will still be available post-Monster Bash. I don't know if there's anything that I won't be able to get my hands on, so I'm doing my best to restrain. I always get nervous because, you know, I, 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 you know, I always go back to uh, the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh was a Disney Vault DVD set. I had it in my hands... At Best Buy, I was like, I'll get it next week. Well, by the next week, it was sold out. Uh, they they apparently printed like six copies of it, and it now sells for like $500 on eBay. Now, I do have a really excellent bootleg copy of it that is actually taken from the original source material, and it, it really is amazing. Again, I'm not supporting bootleg copies, <laughs> but... Sometimes you, you got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. Was that pre-internet days, or how long ago was that? Uh, when the Scarecrow and Marsh, the that you held the DVD. Why was that? How long ago was? Oh that? gosh, that that came out uh, early two thousands, maybe possibly at least ten years ago. Oh. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, because I remember I worked down the street from Best Buy, so yeah, probably about ten years ago now, at least. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's it's um, and it's still demanding high dollars and, and it's I think with the current environment over at Disney they're not uh, re-releasing a lot of those those vault things I think those are one and done so um, yeah but I have a copy of it again so 
So as part of new business, we've been doing the birthdays and in our next month for our episode, there are, it's a heavy hitting month for birthdays. So Richard, why don't you tell them how we're going to spin that into our next episode? Well, we have uh, three legendary birthdays next month um, and it doesn't get too much bigger than these gentlemen, uh, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and all born actually within a matter of, of days of each other. So uh, we decided we're going to do a trilogy of films next month and uh, taking films in which um, incorporate uh, at least two of the actors. Now, Price, Lee, and Cushing did do two films together, uh, Scream and Scream Again and uh, House of the Long Shadows. Scream and Scream Again, and we're not covering either one of these films. Scream and Scream Again is, is a bit of a cheat because Price and Lee don't have a lot of time together and Cushing doesn't have any screen time with either of them. Um, and as a movie, it's, it's marginal at best. House of Long Shadows could have been a lot more fun if it wouldn't have had Desi Arnaz Jr. in it. He really does hurt the film. Now, at least, though, they do get a chance to have screen time together. Yeah, um, but, I, but I feel like I want to do something where they're a little more in their prime Something a little better, something a little more in their prime. So for... Uh, and, and by the way, let me say, this is no easy task to pick which films, you know, do you pick your favorite? Do you pick one that the uh, one of us hasn't it. seen? Well, that's we nearly did. impossible, especially with Richard. So I like the little twist that we came up with. We, we debated over this, and, and I think we came up with a, a good selection of films. Uh, the Oblong Box, 1969, I believe. Um, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee. Uh, it's been a very long time since I've seen The Oblong Box, so I'm looking forward to revisiting that. Is that a first-time viewing for you, or have you seen it? <sighs> you know, if I did, it's been uh, on CBS TV back when I was a kid, so it'd, it'd be like a new viewing. Right, a long time ago. So then we're, uh, we're going to pull Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing together. They did a lot of films together over the years. And we're going to do a, a fun anthology film called The House That Dripped Blood. Now, if you thought we were going to get by an episode without mentioning Doctor Who, by you God. Know, you're going to save it for next time. You're going to have to do I, it I'm going to do it right. twice. i got to get Doctor Who on here because I, I can't come up with a Star Trek reference. I'm, I'm, I, I ran out. I just, there's nothing um, other than to say that Star Trek uh, ended its run in the same year that the Oblong Box was released. <laughs> there. Shoehorn that in. Yes, John Pertwee is also starring in The House of Drip Blood, and John Pertwee, of course, best known for his role as the third Doctor on Doctor Who. That'll be one of the films we're covering next month. For me, his best known role is in The House of Drip Blood. Uh, he actually has a really good role in that yes. film, and I think that's one of his better films outside of the Doctor Who genre. And last but not least, uh, we bring Vincent Price and Peter Cushing together for Madhouse. Uh, so that's our selection of films next month. I think we're going to have fun with it, uh, celebrating the uh, legends of uh, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing. And uh, I'm sure we'll throw in all sorts of fun trivia and stuff. But here's a little tidbit we'll end out and, and tease next month. Boris Karloff did work with uh, Christopher Lee a couple of times. He worked with Vincent Price, but he never did a film with Peter Cushing. Balagosi never worked with uh, any Price, Lee, or, or Cushing. Uh, you're taking to the either, you know the first reign, so to speak. Uh, and then Lon Chaney Jr., who was kind of the last of that triumphant, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. did work with Vincent Price, 
And I'm drawing a blank if he worked with, with uh, Cushing or Lee. I'm not sure that he did. Thinking, I want to think that maybe he did. I thought but, he uh, did. I thought we looked at one that he was in with Christopher Lee. But we'll do some so. research uh, next month, and we'll see. Uh, uh, you know, we'll talk about the first reign of, of horror legends and, and uh, uh, the kind of the passing of the torch on into uh, with the uh, gentleman Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing, who we'll be celebrating next month here on the podcast. Woohoo! All right, so just real quick, I'm Jeff Owens, Classic Horrors Club Facebook. Pinterest, Twitter, email if you'd like, classichorrors.club at gmail.com. That's how you get hold of us. The podcast is on uh, classichorrors.club as well as Downright Creepy on the Phantom Podcast Network. Subscribe through iTunes, blah, blah, all that. Richard, where can we find you? You can find me at kccinephile.com. Everything I do is posted there, and that'll take you to any other film reviews that uh, pop up over at Boom Howdy, pop over at uh, Monster Movie Kid. Uh, you can also uh, listen to me over at the Dread Media Podcast, which just celebrated its 500th episode. Uh, we're, what, 495 away from that? So yeah. uh, we've got a ways to go. But uh, tune in to episode 500. That's the first time that uh, myself and, and host Desmond Eric actually talked to each other. We communicated online and emails, but never actually spoke to each other uh, Skype to Skype before. So, uh, And I've got some fun reviews coming up over there, which by the time you hear this probably won't be on there. I'm going to be doing uh, reviews of the Belko Experiment and uh, the Devils, which uh, I'll just throw out this recommendation. Uh, Shudder is only $5 a month. They've got a lot of great movies on there, uh, streaming movies, and the Devils, is uh, currently streaming over at, Sh- at Shutter, and uh, that is that's a trippy film. If you've never seen it, it's been a very impossible film to get for the years. And the fact that you can uh, stream it, you know, technically you can stream it for free because I think they're doing like a seven day free trial. So uh, go check it out. It's uh, and hear my thoughts on on those uh, that and uh, the Belko experiment coming soon to Dread Media. And one last thing, I'm sorry for the disorganization, but Richard and I are going to probably be participating in a uh, relative in the Phantom Podcast Network over at the Nightmare Junkhead Podcast uh, with Greg D. and Genius McGee. They've been doing a March Madness for movies in four decades, 1977, 87, 97, 07. Of course, we're going to participate and help find the winners in the 1977 bracket. So uh, that will probably happen before our next podcast. But if you're following along at the Phantom Podcast Network and and all of us, you'll have no trouble being made aware of when that's going to air. But we're going to get on with those young bucks and we're going to tell them what a good movie is from 1977. There's some good good movies at uh, the selection, some first-time viewings for me as well. So, And luckily... A lot of those were on Shutter. Um, That's what so made that, me think of it. That that uh, that was a big uh, big help to to my pocketbook. With with uh, Monster Bash coming up, we must save every shekel that we can. So well, I enjoyed it. We will call this meeting to a close and see you next month. Take care, everyone. I was flying a plane for the Third World War Ran out of fuel, so I landed to get more Didn't know the army was testing a bomb I was in the middle, and soon my skin was gone 
I survived the blast, how or why I still don't know My skin had healed and things were fine But then I started to grow, oh yeah, baby Now I can't fit into my shoes Boy, it's tough to be amazing and colossal And still have the blues Next thing I know, I'm 20 feet tall My beloved fiancé just looks like a Barbie doll I eat a dozen truckloads of beef every week Living in a circus tent, hey, I must be a circus freak I could tour with P.T. Barnum, biggest act you've ever seen But wait a minute now, they've discovered a vaccine Oh, hallelujah But of course by now I've broken loose I've lost my mind and gone to Vegas to cure my amazing colossal man blues. Yeah, I get into Vegas and I come across the Hard Rock Cafe. Yeah, the Las Vegas edition of the multinational 15 bucks for a cheeseburger. Eat right next to Mark Knopfler's sweat encrusted headband, Hard Rock Cafe. And there's a giant guitar on the rooftop And since this is a blues song I pick it up and start it to play Well, everything's such a pain When you got the gigantic, enormous, incredible, humongous, gargantuan, Brobdignagian Really, really, really big! Massive, immense, towering, jumbo, mammoth, oversized, capacious, and other antonyms for small! Disgruntled! Radioactive! Cut my foot when I step on a gas station! Looking down on the clouds with contempt! Accidentally swallowed a 747 airplane! The in-flight movie was Kangaroo Jack, so the passengers probably wanted to die anyway! Big and mean! Black and white! Cheesy special effects! 1957! We're on a mission from God! Outrageous! Stupendous! Medically impossible! Amazing Colossal Man!